The disillusion started when I would get up at church and be part of the people at the Mass on the altar and thinking that, what was I out doing the night before? And I'm up here being holy, and I have this special place in the world in Mass. People are listening to me, and that has nothing to do with my real life. And so I started to have this real understanding of the duality of people, and it kind of took my, you know, I held up priests and policemen, and, and that it kind of went, wait a minute, we're all human. Right. And I was looking for somebody and something to look up to. So, uh, welcome to uh, Knowing and Believing, and this is, I think, my fourth conversation with someone off of Craigslist, somewhere around there. Um, this is Valerie Jackson. How you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Tell me your background and, and what you got going on. Okay. So, I'm really um, excited and nervous to be here. I kind of did this on a lark. I'm not always on Craigslist, but I was in there, and it happens I'm between jobs. So, i like, what can I do to be productive, do something different, get outside my comfort zone, and saw your listing. So, that's one thing I believe already is I, I think I believe in kismet. Kismet. What is, what is kismet? Sorry, I'm going to move this over there. So, kismet to me is... I'm just going to go off what just comes to my gut, because I really haven't given a lot of thought mm -hmm. to that question. It's just automatic, right? So, oh, that's kismet. It's not faith. It's a little bit of luck and a little bit of fate. And I, I hmm. just sometimes feel it's, it's um, I don't serendipitous think serendipitous to a degree. Serendipitous, not as, um, not as strong or meaningful as synchronicity, but it could hmm. turn out to be, I guess, because right. we're just starting our conversation. So where I leave here at the end of this conversation, it may have been big synchronicity happening in my life right so uh kismet yep so kismet how i found you so um i am 56 years old i keep forgetting that i think i when i first reached out to you i told you i was 55 yeah um, i think so yeah. <laughs> so i was raised in portsmouth i'm the youngest of seven kids uh and we were brought up catholic well of course you have seven siblings yeah you know, mm -hmm. seven, that six. kind of explains some of it yeah. yep <laughs> so i was um pretty active in the church uh from a young age and also, I would say that I was kind of the rebellious person in my family as, as far as what I would call now social justice and equality, but back then it was just not fair. Um, mm, okay. And so at the beginning, even early on, I was like, why? So I was born in 62, yep. and I remember saying, why can't I be an altar girl? Like, what is the big deal? We have altar boys. Right. Why can't I be an altar girl? And I would ask that question of parents or of priests, and there was never an answer that was right for me. Um, and so I just, uh, I think from that early age, I was kind of trying to push some boundaries and understand um, how I could fit my world into the beliefs of the church to which I belonged. Right, right. So you, you growing up saw like, what is it that allows these boys to be altar boys? And I have the desire to serve in the same way, mm -hmm. but yet I'm prevented because I have, you know, different genitalia yeah. and, you know, uh, a larger corpus callosum, a larger connection <laughs> between the right and left hemispheres. That's why supposedly, you know, it's just not, not stereo, it's a generalization that women have a larger corpus callosum connection between the two hemispheres mm -hmm. and they're, they're more adept at multitasking mm -hmm. where men are much more like, please do not enter anything else into right now I'm processing, you mm -hmm. know. Um, which to me seems like an advantage, you know, advantage team female. But um, yeah, that that's uh, how do you how do you deal with that as a young girl growing up and 
being told like, no, this is your place and you can't go outside of it. And cause it's interesting to me because, um, Scandinavia, uh, was on board with all of the, uh, e- opportunity of equality. I'm, I'm getting the wrong words there, but, um, there's a difference between opportunity of equality and enforced equality, mm-hmm. right? Right. So if we look at the <clears throat> numbers of people being employed across the country and say, all right, there's only this amount of women CEOs, we have to make that number go up. Mm-hmm. To do that might push against the natural dispersion of interests and propensities that men and women have differently. Oh, equality of opportunity, equality of outcome. So that's kind of like insisting on all the outcomes have to be equal. Mm-hmm. That can forcefully manipulate and create pressures and skew things to a point that isn't reflective of the true desires of all of those involved. Right. Now, equality of opportunity, where it's truly an equal opportunity for any woman to not have barriers to get to this other typically male position Mm -hmm. if she wants. That type of situation has been far more prevalent in Scandinavia for longer. And what they found is that in the data and research of it is that since that's been uh, achieved as far as there's no hurdles or there's far, far, far less than, you know, um, that men and women actually more so divide into the stereotypical roles. And this is, this is just data. This is not like a spin on women should be here and men should be there. It's, it's kind of like the pressure of um, this is what you can't have, therefore I will have it, right? right? Right. That is removed and it's like, all right, I can go there if I want, but what I really want to do is this. You know, it's it, it's about the ability to be recognized for the con- contribution that you want to make. And it sounds right. like there's not because they've worked on that system to build that equality. There's not a better than it's an either or. Right. That's, right. Right. And geez, when you look at their uh, prison reform mm-hmm. and everything, justice system there, it's amazing compared to ours like ours is this just festering sore compared to and i get it that they're tiny countries in comparison to a massive country and there's different things involved there but i mean they treat their prison inmates with all right we expect this behavior out of you and as you demonstrate that behavior you get more and more freedom and responsibility even within this penal system it's uh not as much penal system as a restorative justice mm-hmm. kind of system. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting, very more forward thinking, it seems. Um, but anyways, before I sidetrack, you were, you were a girl in the Catholic Church wanting to serve and be involved as an altar, altar person. And they're like, well, you can't do that. Right. And so what's that do to you and your outlook on God and faith and religion and everything else at that point? Um. So, it, of course, my initial instinct and my initial response or reaction was, that's not fair. Right. Um, I don't think I had the ability or the wisdom or the uh, inclination to be able to build a case. Right. But because you're asking me this question, I have a feeling I'm going to have a lot of reflection here as we go through this. Because sure. Sure. Um, it's, it's been kind of my story that I fight. Mm-hmm. Like, if, the, if somebody tells me I can't do something, 
that's when I'm going to build a case. And I am usually pretty successful. And so I didn't even try. I found other avenues. But I would also say that that men versus women that I really never thought about until I was a young working single mom, uh, because I just took the path that I was laid out in front of me in life. Um, so now they told you you couldn't do that. And yeah. so your reaction was, I can do that, but I can do this. that in a different form, well, like not involved in right, the church. So I, became but a lector. I became a lector at the church, which was uh, in the Catholic church as part of mass, lay people, and this is way back, right? I graduated high school in 1980 and have only been back for funerals and weddings. Right. Um, and so you would get up and read some of the scripture and you would do a call and response with people with prayer. Right. Um, I joined the choir. I joined the CYO or CCD as we had it and became president of the youth organization. So um, I had a lot of connection in different ways with the church and found ways to engage with clergy Mm-hmm. on a on a different level because of that level of um, contribution right see and that that's the exact thing that uh, that I'm s- seeing there with the Scandinavian example of equality of opportunity is like as soon as they took something and put it out of your reach it's like well wait a minute maybe I want to <laughs> reach that whereas if it was like yeah sure you can serve you might have been like all right and tried it a couple weeks and then been like you know it's it's great and all, but I find more fulfillment doing this. Or you might have been like, this is great. I shine at this. Awesome. But to just take it and put it out of reach um, as, mm. as a blanket statement for everybody, it then, no matter if you truly would be good in that position or not, you then fight to achieve that. You spend a lot of your life tr- you know, mm. striving for the ability to have uh, equal opportunity or the opportunity to do that when you don't even, you're not even offered the experience to see if that's what you really want. You have to battle for equality before you can even find that's, what you're naturally good at. That's And that huge. seems like a, a waste yeah. because of the people creating the roadblocks. Yeah. And it's so huge to think of it in that way. Um, and again, it wasn't anything intentional. I'm realizing this as I've been thinking, but also as we're talking. I'm realizing like when you asked me that question, I was like, oh, well, actually... This led to this, right. and this led to that. And sometimes those connections I just don't see right. because we're, I'm living it. Right, right. Really powerful. And I do, um, I think you're right right on with what that data demonstrates and what that impact would be where barriers were in place because I have come to love challenges, and, and it's helped me build my career and build my uh, relationships uh, and ability to lead as a me- head of my family. Right. Um, and have not been put down by many. And, and, uh, and so realizing that was illustrated early on is eye-opening for me. Hmm. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you found ways to be interactive within mm-hmm. the church community that you were part of. Mm-hmm. Um, where did it go after you were <laughs> yeah. uh, active in the church yeah. in the ways they'd allow you to be interactive? Yes. Uh, how did how did things grow after that and move forward? Mm-hmm. So a couple things, uh, several things happened um, that I think all informed the next step. So 
uh, my dad had a stroke. My dad was an older dad, and he had a stroke when I was 17 years old. So that was when I graduated high school. He had it mm. that summer. Yep. Um, and I was involved, as I said, up to the church through that time. Um, so that happened. My sister was engaged and going to be married. And by the way, I was living as a uh, attractive, outgoing girl in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was living the life of that person, a single person out with my friends. And, and, um, and the disillusionment started. These, I'm going to connect those dots in a second. Sure. But the, the disillusion started when I would get up at church and be part of the people at the mass on the altar and thinking that what was I out doing the night before? Mm. And I'm up here being holy and, you know, with this, not, I'm not holy necessarily myself, but I have this special place in the world in mass. People are listening to me and that has nothing to do with my real life. Mm. So, so you were, you were living, you were, you were upfront interacting with the church, yes. which uh, professes these ways of living. Yes. But when you weren't there, you were living something different. Exactly right. And, and I mean... I would say absolutely everyone does that. It's just a spectrum to what degree that, it, that from, is done. It's true. And I think at that time I went, wait a minute. Like if I can get away with this and then I looked around me, what else is, what else is anybody doing here? So I have these faith in leaders that I think are living a life that they preach, but there's no connection between their life and what happens on a Sunday morning. So, so you got to a level of leadership and then you self-reflected and said, I'm leading and I'm being looked up to, but I'm not living up to it. Mm-hmm. And then you transferred that same reflection to onto others. the other people in leadership and you realize like, how much are these people not really buying into this? Well, leadership or, and, and just, uh, grownups and yep. adults. So yep. even with my dad, I remember we, and it's a joke, right? That everybody is so lovely in mass and loving their neighbor and they get out to the parking lot and race. Who's going to get out of the parking lot first. <laughs> and it really happened. And my dad was a tough father. Um, everyone in the church community thought he was just the greatest thing ever. I'm, you're gonna I'm, I'm gesticulating. <laughs> I will get expressive. There we go. <laughs> um, Everyone in the church community was like, he was so charming and lovely and kind. And we saw a workhorse, taskmaster, disciplinarian. Mm-hmm. We didn't see that side. And so I started to have this real understanding of the yin and the yang and, yeah. and the, the duality of people. And it kind of took my, you know, I held up priests and policemen and, and that it kind of went, wait a minute, we're all human. Right. And I was looking for somebody and something to look up to. Now, now. Your experience reflects much of what my experience has been as well. But why do we have this idea that we think anyone can live up to a consistent set of morals that they always can uphold? It just seems as you get older, you realize how absurd that is. Um, I've been accused by my really good friends of doing that with management too. Like I have such a high bar where I work for management that it makes it hard. I'm not working now, so any company that it makes it hard for people to live up to what my expectations are. Uh And I'm, I'm curious if that is, is it just in your leaders in the church that you're talking about in your upbringing or in Hmm. other? Um, Well, a lot of the disillusionment for me came from fairly fairly major missteps of people that I looked up to, mm-hmm. um, older brothers of friends, uh, parents of friends that, um, 
you know, I just kind of thought these people, how, how could you go to that extreme? And I'm talking extreme of really poor decisions, you know? Um, and that kind of at, at a regional level made me lose, uh, confidence in, um, just leadership or authority here on earth, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And I had no, it, it kind of oddly was a confidence booster where I realized like no one's got it all together. Mm -hmm. So don't be so critical on yourself about having to have everything together all the time. Everyone's, you know, falling apart and putting themselves back together constantly. Um, but I, you just kind of, it seems like you absorb this idea growing up and, and especially religious contexts where you think that everyone's got the victory over everything and they they all really believe what they profess to believe and as you get older and more honest with or at least more open with people you start to realize like everyone has questions everyone makes mistakes mm -hmm. everyone you know, hopefully doesn't make huge mistakes, but there's a lot of people that make huge mistakes. And it's like, what do you do with that? You know, for me, it's, it's made me realize just with even relatively menial things that I can't, um, consistently avoid or whatever in my life. It's given me a lot more sympathy for people like that have heroin addictions or, um, you know, were abused in their life and are transferring that abuse to others. These are incredibly ingrained and generational things that are so hard to overcome. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't in any way make it allowable. And it doesn't make it in any way something that should not be worked on. But I have these days a lot more uh, forgiveness and grace, if you will, towards most everyone. The, the hardest time that I have is with people that profess, you know, like a certainty of what they believe uh, through religion, because it's just when I when I look at it, I see justification for some of the most cruel things coming from those types of belief systems. And the people I'm thinking of, I'm not assigning that kind of behavior to them, but I see the uh, trajectory of that kind of belief system where it you know, expounded upon exponentially where it kind of goes, you know, and, and that's a really hard thing for me to grapple with. Uh, if, if people, and I was just talking with, uh, a friend of mine yesterday about this. If, if people were to take belief and put it in a uncertainty corral, that's kind of where it belongs in my opinion, mm -hmm. something that's in there that needs work, needs attention and needs to be continually thought about and worked upon. But if you have a certainty corral in your head and you put belief in there, what things that go in a certainty corral would be like math, who your mother is, who your sister is, who your wife is. You know, you know these things, relative certainty. I, I know you can break things down to where nothing's true, but those are kind of certain things. But if you throw that kind of thing in a certainty corral, you don't need to work on the things in the certainty corral. I know who my mother is. I don't need to work on that. I don't need to work on, 
you know, that math is true or that when I drop things, they'll drop, you know. But what you do is you've deceptively, self-deceptively mm. put it in there, in my opinion. And instead of leaving it in there, anything in the certainty corral essentially is a tool. Mm-hmm. It, you pull things out of there to help you work on things in the uncertain corral, mm-hmm. right? But if you put something in there that's not truly a tool, that is something that needs to be worked on, but you don't ever work on it, you say, no, this is certain. What you do is you end up working on the corral, the surroundings of that thing. So you start to develop a culture and traditions and everything else that keep anything from coming into that corral to harm it and to keep it from getting out. So you develop all these, you know, cultural signals and everything else, maybe a specific way of dressing or a specific way of eating and, and these propensities to not look deeper into the things that you believe around this thing that you've falsely put in the certainty corral. And to me, that's, that's, the, that's the real big danger there is to take something so important like the things that we project into the unknown. Like we don't know these things, but we think this is what it might be. Like belief is a hypothesis, right. you know, and to take a hypothesis and put it in the place of certainty when it's not, you're going to start doing a lot of other experiments that are going to fall flat because you might not actually be able to be certain about that so the other things fall apart i'm on a tangent i'm i'm (laughs) I'm with you and i'm thinking about the folks that where they spend their time and i know certainty is a fixed if it's truly certainty it's fixed right like some people when you ask them like mathematicians are like true certainty real certainty is almost nearly impossible but i'm saying if you have someone that you that maybe does not even think about belief, like you said, but it's just, this is their comfort zone is that certainty. And, and right. or when you say that they've been conflated, what is it that gets someone to, to make that change, to break down one of those barriers and say, wait a minute, I had to wake to, up. Like to like, break out of the certainty, to the take certainty something belief. uncertain out of the certainty. Yes. I think life, huge, horrible things happening or, uh, things that, come out of left field that are just like the, you know, breaking down of the worldview. I mean, I was, I was there, I was attempting, I kept trying to put things in the certainty corral and they kept jumping out. And it's a really hard thing. And mentally you can come to a place where you're like, all right, I get it. Um, this doesn't go in the certainty corral. I'll be fine. But then your emotions, like this other part of you come along for me, like months behind that. And then are like, ah, (laughs) you know, and you have a little bit of a freak out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, on the level of like being molested by a priest or, you know, a relative, um, someone close to you dying and not, not having sufficient, you know, answers that, that match up to what you believe, you know, like mm-hmm. seeing children suffering, things like this, mm-hmm. you know, the big, the big horrible things you can really easily hurt those things in the certainty corral mm-hmm. that shouldn't be in there that it's so interesting because i i do believe that some many cases you can see something such as horrible conditions for children and see it and see it but you've never really seen it and internalized it and so mm. there's that faith part because there's something what's different the fourth time you hear or see something when it, when it sinks in, right? Like, I think it's about readiness in our own, in our own soul and in our own minds. Can I even take that all in? 
that we may not even recognize. It may be unconscious, but something is protecting us from really taking that in. And, that, and that's the questions I have. Like, what is that? Right. Is it all from familiarity? Because I've seen something like that before. I know how I react. So I'm going to go back to that part of my brain and, you know, trigger those instincts. Or is it something bigger? Those are biases, it seems. Like right. the confirmation biases. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all the, there's so many psychological biases mm -hmm. that once you're imprinted with something, those natural That's right. instinct bias, biases kind of take over. They kind of welcome in whatever you've been told and they put it in the back and then they stand guard yeah. as biases. Right. Like, you know, uh, you know, anything you could believe about the Old Testament, New Testament, whatever comes in as a question that maybe another religion believes, but mm -hmm. you're part of the one true religion. Mm. And so it's, Ding, you know, the, your yep. bias just deflects that, dismisses yep. it as just ridiculous, you know. And it's not until the something gets between the armor there and, you know, really gets at your emotional core and rational core and combines them and says, there's an issue here that you don't have an answer to. You might say you do, but you realize you don't. And when that gets in there and start, it'll fester and sometimes for years. Mm. And eventually I think that those are the kind of things that for me, it was uh, getting to know uh, gay people. And it sounds so pathetic to say, but you know, I just growing up, I grew up in a very conservative uh, religious uh, environment and the kids that were gay were not coming out of the closet. And, you know, I was one of the kids that would tease them occasionally, not really harshly, but it was it was definitely, you know, it, it, we were not welcoming to these kids, you know. And when I got to an age of realizing being out in the more normal world and got to know individuals that were gay and got to, you know, sit down and eat with them and share life with them to a degree and get to realize like they had no choice in this. This is what they realized when they went through puberty. You know, it's like, oh, I'm attracted to that, you know? And then how can you, I mean, if you're a Calvinist, I guess you can justify it. But if you believe that people have choice and that we're choosing and it's an idea of, you know, salvation and choice and all that, how can you put something as, you know, completely wrong and unacceptable that's saddled on that person out of no choice of their own? I don't know how to justify uh, pushing their experience in human suffering deeper. Like, to right. condemn them, even, like... To think of a kid in the system that I grew up in that realizes eventually that they're gay, but they know this culture does not accept that. Mm. The people that are the very closest to them, right. they lose that and they become an outcast. That's right. And I couldn't imagine if I didn't have the closest relationships that I need to make me a confident enough person to deal with all the other crap in this world. What if you didn't have that just out of no choice of your own and then you had to hide it forever? Right. And I just, I can't look at the core principles of the Bible and Christ, which I believe are good core principles, and say that it is consistent across the totality of a literal interpretation of the Bible and apply that to my life now and think that that's good. 
right. to to push human suffering further down that hole yep. is is just not not okay. You and can't so even think that it would be and from and because it, of a from a loving deity, right? That doesn't yeah. it doesn't equate. You know, I think we have a lot in common. My my moment that that paradigm shift moment for me uh, came when I was involved in church. I was in the CCD and I was senior in high school or so. Remember, I said I graduated in 1980, and you know I didn't even realize again while I was living it. But Vietnam wasn't that far behind, where, right. right? It's and like when um, you look at now, you look back at like the Gulf War that was just yeah, yesterday, and no, you're I like, know. oh, that was way right. long ago. What do you mean those are oldies on the songs? That yeah. I just you know um, Nirvana is an oldie. <laughs> what? <laughs> Right. Um, so anyway, I remember somehow because we were old enough, we were having a conversation and the priest was talking to us old enough people about marriage and love and all that. And I don't know where I got this from. So, you know, we were talking about these other instances of just injustice is what I felt. Um, and I remember because I was reading things and aware of the news and whatever. And I remember asking the question. I said, wait a minute, because they were talking about procreation and marriage between a man and a woman and that. And gay wasn't even on my mind it, at that moment. Um, and I said, wait a minute. Are you telling me that if, like, say somebody came home from war and they were paralyzed from the waist down and they could never have kids, are you saying that even if they were single, they could never get married in the Catholic Church? So the Catholic Church, if you're not able to reproduce, you shouldn't get married? This is my memory of being that age, and it was a moment for me. So this was what was said. Okay. And I was like, what? And I said, well, who else, this, who else needs love more than this poor person coming from war who's paralyzed? And I can't believe that. And it was such a, it, it was like I, I completely went mm. over a boundary. And I, I it, and that started so many other things that I thought, yeah. how could a loving God do that? How, it, this isn't fair, right. it, you know, and, um, and simplified things and thinking about even Adam and Eve, right? The story at the beginning and put them in the garden with the temptation. And when I became a parent, having a moment like, why would I tempt my kids? Why, why would I ever do that? If I'm a right. loving parent, why would I put something there to test them? You just wouldn't. <laughs> so a lot of stuff just went pulled back. The hard back. thing for me as a father is like, all right, there's no way I'm going to take off and leave my kids and leave them a note <laughs> right? and say, this is good enough yeah. for you to believe that I love you and I'll, I'll like email you once in a while, <laughs> like email. That's a, that's a little outside of like, you know, what we're expected to believe yeah. is like impressions from God or whatever. But, you know, to, for an all powerful deity to be, divinely silent the divine silence is mm -hmm. an issue that you know a theological issue that people wrestle with to to be silent but to say here's everyone else's experience that we deem okay to put in this collection of books right and this is enough for you and you need to have enough faith off of this note from other people that right. were inspired by it and right i get it that there is awe and wonder and i I have an inclination that there is something beyond. And, and it's very possible that many of these things in that book are, are real. It, it's absolutely possible. But the degree at which, as I was saying before, people hold this as a, a thing of certainty, the degree at which they hold that to there is inappropriate. And that's when you get the harmful aspects of religion, in my opinion. If you hold them as, uh, you know, uncertain, but they, they, they become things that can grow and be further influenced. You know, we, we don't still sacrifice animals and we don't stone adulterers. We don't, there's all these 
things from the Old Testament that we don't do anymore. Right. And why can we not continue to, you know, so. It's, um, I watched a, a, a show the other night and um, they, the show was done, it was a historic, it was a history series on Netflix. Can I say anything on this? Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, so it was a history series. And Hardly said, anyone's listening anyways. So. Oh, well, well, after this one, maybe they will be. Yeah, right, <laughs> I like your thinking. Okay, so this, it's the first time I've heard of this. So it was on the, um, uh, the, Nicholas Alexander, the, the um, czar and all the family. Oh, the, la- the last czar. Yeah, I've seen that and, advertised. But here's the deal. I've never seen this model. And then I read on it to see what does this mean. So it's, they said it's 80% drama, 20% documentary. So yeah. it's a drama with actors and people doing the scenes. And interspersed are historians, professors, huh. actual film footage. And so I thought, I'm so glad I read about that because I, I would have been so confused watching the what's real with the what right. is. And, you know, when I think about the Bible, I know that there are some things that um, we have turned uh, up in history that there yeah. are, they find an ossuary or they find things, actual artifacts that seem to support the story. Right. But I wonder how much of it is, you know, drama and how much of it is actual documentary. Sure. And so do I think that, jo- you know, Jonah went in a whale? I, it's possible. So anything's possible. I believe anything's possible, but that's highly unlikely in my mind. Right. Um, and so, but somebody had to make something bigger. Maybe it doesn't mean that the meaning behind it isn't meant to be, or it's not important, but I totally get it. There are some things that just don't equate. I don't think that I believe in a God or a certain being. I do think the Bible has good intentions. I don't know that those even make sense. I don't believe. Yeah, it, it, that's a hard thing for me as well, though, yeah. because you look at, you know, what determines, and this is an argument I have with people that are still in the certainty camp, mm-hmm. uh, what determines good and bad? Right. Is it just solely based on human suffering? So we can continue to factory farm and everything else, yet still say that dogs and cats for some special reason are uh sentient beings and we can't leave them in a car and let them you know i'm obviously not professing this this is something we should do but a pig is a very intelligent highly social animal why do they get to be factory factory farmed and yet we don't factory farm dogs and when we see you know asian countries that eat dogs it's just so offensive to us but you know so that the idea of our moral formation and and how we deal with all of that and by what standard we kind of uphold our beliefs and and where they're where they have their underpinnings uh is is so confusing when you get into it it's so confusing and it goes back to for me thinking about you know talking about role models or leaders having to be perfect uh feeling disappointed it's everything feels like a black and white and I think it probably led to me acting a little black and white right but it, it, everything's so much more gray okay. and it's really hard to put it in and the older I get the more I realize that not too many things are yeah right I mean it, it, things are more complex than they seem if you really keep peeling off the layers um it's a it's a it's a lot to think about. <laughs> I'm just thinking about your comments about animals and, you know, bringing my kids to the zoo when they were little. It wasn't even in my awareness. Oh, yeah. Never, never thought two, two seconds about it. And now I'm, you know, because it's part of the national conversation right. and the, you know, extreme left is much louder these days. You, it forces you to think about it a little bit like, all right, do I really care? Do these things really think? And yeah, that, that animal does look pretty miserable there. 
And how is it okay that, you know, because you think about it, like, I had this interaction on, on Instagram with a, a person that I follow that is a big fisherman, mm-hmm. right? And I honestly don't have a problem with people fishing. It's not my point here. But, you know, he goes out fishing and, you know, brings it in, takes it home and eats it. And someone had said something, you know, far left leaning, something about cruelty animals. And he's like, it's okay. You know, we're, we're eating this. It's not being wasted. It's like, well, how's that a justification? If someone comes and, you know, you know, starts to attack your kid and they're like, no, it's okay. Yeah. We're going to eat him. Right. You know, so, you know, there, it's a humanist approach at that point. Fine. But even so, like if I show up in someone's yard in the morning with a fishing pole and everything else, but I just have like a little mouse lure on the end and I catch their cat and right. take it home and eat it. Right. How is that okay or not okay compared to the fishing? Or do, do we, we then right. base the value of what's good and bad based on what we perceive as different levels of consciousness, you know? When you start to get into breaking all that down, none of it really makes sense unless you look at it all in a very, very self-centered manner. Like anything that I care about gets special treatment. Anything that we care about, pets, they get special treatment. Like, don't you dare touch my, you know, peekapoo or whatever, but I'll, you know, go out and fish and, and, you know, or, you know, Japanese have these, you know, they toy dogs and whatever. They're so cute and that they go home and they love after they slaughter all these dolphins. I know. So it, it doesn't make sense but we just kind of acclimate to this situation and and we to a lot of times use religion and our worldviews to you know manipulate the situation and excuse it and it's just it's just weird it's weird and it's it's a lot to think about right so even just as you explain that right so it goes maybe it's easy to say i don't like veal i've never liked veal but I don't like it because of what they grow. And I'm like, what makes that different, as you said, than a cow, whatever. That one's easy, and I don't really have to think about it because I don't consume it. But if you really look at the world through that way of, like, what is the what is the harm? Is there harm being done to anything in this process? You almost have to go in a bubble because, like, there's oh, yeah. everything. You can't walk to your car without harming something. Right. You can't be a <laughs> vegan and eat factory farm food without killing animals. Right. The, 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 the level of slaughter that happens to just run-in-a-mill rodents and everything else when they harvest, like, oh, oh, yeah. wheat and right. everything right. else is huge. So you, you're not getting an out there either. And I, I heard it described the other day. Uh, comparing the life of like like we ban dog fighting right in in the states and you know i think it was michael vick was mm-hmm. his name is yep. doing that yep. he goes to prison and everything else yet we're factory farming pigs you look at the life of uh like cockfighting that they still do in like central america and stuff mm-hmm. the life of one of those roosters yep. right they get all the food they want yeah they get free range they get really good food and they generally have to do two to four fights after like two years of living the high life. Mm-hmm. And if they are successful in those two to four fights, they'll never fight again and they'll just mate the rest of their life. If I'm looking at being a chicken or a rooster or something, right. I want that opportunity compared to being a boiler chicken right. in a factory farm where they're crammed into these things like this wide. And supposedly they suffer from like real chronic pain because they're not even able to move. And they only live for like a month or something crazy, you know? And 
again, look at it logically. This thing that we see as just horrible and cruel because we see two animals trying to kill each other, that is a far, far superior existence than a factory farm chicken. Yet we are blind to seeing that. Now, if I compare, like, I listen to Joe Rogan podcast a lot, and he's a big hunter Mm -hmm. uh, with, like, a bow and arrow hunter. And he won't eat factory farmed food, but he hunts. He, he said, look, this is too bad. I can't, I can't partake in factory farming, but I like to eat meat. I don't agree with, uh, you know, the... Sport hunting. Or what? Yeah, but at the same time, he's like, this animal, to die at the hands of a wolf or a bear or a mountain lion or something else is about 50 times worse than getting hit by one arrow. Me going out and hunting is not creating anything worse than starvation or death by their natural means, right? And so that's how he looks at it. And, and I don't have a lot of problem with that, other than that I'm vegetarian and I just don't eat meat. So I, you know, and if people want to eat factory farm food, I'm not really in the business of trying to shame people into doing one thing or the other. Right. But it, the moral foundations of those things are very interesting to me that we make dogfighting and cockfighting illegal, yet we still maintain factory farming. You know, it's just. Yes, and there's a third choice, right? So saying it's, I'd rather be this than this, but what about neither? You know, what kind of world would it be if we didn't even have to worry about that and everything could just live to what it's supposed to be? Well, Uh, it's (laughs) it's a horribly cruel world outside of the bubble of human existence that we've made though i mean we killed all the predators that would kill us pretty much and we're still working on the sharks but i'm sure we'll get there but i mean you know i we have the luxury of saying let's take this you know uh very um artificial life that we live Mm -hmm. compared to nature right you know if you could hear the screams of all nature dying, it would be Ugh. horrendous. Yeah. But we've created a, a safe environment for us because we're intelligent enough. And so we killed everything that could prey on us pretty much. And, you know, were we to let all these un- other animals, you know, be at peace and not interfere in their lives, they'd still be going through the same thing. Mm. Not on the factory farming level, but right. they'd still be being preyed upon by right. everything same. else. So. Where is the the choice in there? I I have no idea. It, it's it's a very complex issue that I don't know. <laughs> and it's easy, you know, as a consumer to put blinders on and yeah. say, I don't want to watch that movie that's going to show me the truth. That will change. It's going to be a changing point in my life when I watch that movie, right. and and then I'm going to have to live that. For I mean, I'm I made my to- family watch Blackfish before we went to Sea oh. World. Oh, I watched that. What did you yeah. think? What did they think? It, it's a, it was a really good, it but a really lot good. of them were like, I don't want to watch this. We're going to SeaWorld tomorrow. Yeah. I was like, I haven't seen it, but I think it's important for us to just, just watch it, you know? And, and then you see these massive, you know, killer whales and their, their fins oh. are just like, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. and yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, I can, I can hear people thinking in their minds like, oh, you soft lefty pinko, blah, blah, blah. But I I'm mean, with you. don't I mean, turn away from it. It's like, it's a legitimate argument. Like, should you really like, especially a level of consciousness at that level, like right. the intelligence there, there's an undue amount of pain. It's, it's not too dissimilar from putting someone in a dead end job in a cubicle for the entirety of their life. Right. You know, but at least that person lives in an environment where they somewhat have a choice to get out of that, you know, but 
you know, that orca stuck. <laughs> I was, uh, I was in Quebec city last weekend and, um, we went to the aquarium and my nephew, my son and my grandson came with me and, um, it, it was different. It was much smaller than the big aquarium that I've seen. There were people, there were animals outside, but still it, I can't see it the same anymore. Right? right. So this is the first time I've been to any, anything with any caged animals in a long, long, long time. Right. And, um, and there is some greatness about really getting that attention, getting the food, all of that. And then, and then what? Like it's, it goes back to us, right? I mean, do you want a, a short, painful, I mean, a short, lovely life that may end in pain? Or do you want something that's going to take you a little, it, it, I mean, you To know? watch like, you know, circle. any, like a lion yeah. just circle yeah. of things. It's yeah. like, oh, geez. I mean, yeah. let them, people should fly to Africa and get in their little protected cars and drive through their territory. Right. Like that's, well, that's how it should go. Maybe. I don't know. I don't even know we need that anymore. Like, so I think with technology, that's something we don't need. We can get a camera there. It's, it's almost the same, right? It's way different than before you could see things live or have drones. Maybe we should make people like you want to go see him. You walk out there. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. And or so you these, give a donation to that particular animal, right. making sure. Like, really, that could be kind of cool. I know I but wouldn't be seeing any no, lines if that's how you had to no, see them. <laughs> no, that's true. All right, we we got okay, sidetracked there. You were animals. you were somewhere up, up front, leading and feeling like you weren't living a consistent life or something. Yeah, so it was there, and it and then I saw it in like you know family life and in the church, and it just continued to be um that i would find other ways so i really never what do you what do you mean by that that i would find other ways if something was not open i would oh, find right. another door okay. E okay or i'd make a door yeah and um and so i don't know what we're talking about anymore <laughs> so you were you were up front leading out and you had I, a bit of disillusionment because of disillusionment. you saw and the the duality of your life leading out professing these things but right. living this way right and which we, to me is an is a okay thing i think if more people understood like this is what i'm striving for but honestly this is what i'm doing and I'm going to live this and, and it's going to come together in a moderation at some point And I'm going to, you know, oh, I, I, so for me, that's all about transparency. Yeah. So the difference is if I have come to the place in my life, which I'm very thankful that I'm just human, I am who I am today. I might change tomorrow might be something different, but there's no, I have no shame anymore. I have no, I don't feel anything that I, um, am not enough. I'm kind of loving myself for the first time. And so I can be totally human with people. And so if somebody is totally human and saying, you know what, we had plans today, but I'm just not feeling like seeing people. And it's okay with you because you know that's a part of me. Some right. days I do that, some days I don't. And this we agree and you know it, I'm transparent. Right. It's so much different than me never letting you see that side. Right. So the are you fairly introverted or extroverted? I think I'm both. Really? I think I'm an ambivert. I've been reading about that ambivert. because, yeah, because I, when I'm on, if I'm doing something in front of a group or I'm at work and I'm feeling mm. that way, I'm very, or I can help. I'm yep. very extroverted if I, if there's anything I can help. Hmm. Okay. Um, but I've come to like my own time. I feel recharged with it and I do need some time for self-reflection. Sure. Sure. But okay. I, I think what I'm trying to say is that the, I totally believe and love that people are, are not perfect. I want somebody that's going to mess up because they're going to be a different person the next day. And, and we all are human that is so many different places. Well, it's right? not enough to mess up. It, it, if you mess up and have transparency and a will to improve and learn that's from right. your mistakes. Right. Very valuable. But you can't just say I did it and then do it again the next day. Right. But, but that transparency of just being fallible. 
that it's right there's, exactly. it's safe to be fallible it changes i believe and transcends yeah. relationships and that, i have two friends huge. that have that have just recently said to me i really really appreciate that you don't get mad at me if i cancel on you i'm like it's your thing like i don't care and if you have a problem with me you'll tell me and guess what i'm gonna cancel on you but I'm not going to lie and say, I'm not feeling well. I'm not going to say something came up. I think you're my, my female middle-aged doppelganger. I'm not kidding you. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. Why is that? Middle-aged is well, generous. Thank you. Um, <laughs> like the first 10 years of my wife and I's marriage, and I've said this on this podcast before, so sorry if you've listened to other ones and have to hear it again. But um, the first 10 years of our marriage, my wife had the... Uh, delusion that I was a uh, you know a infallible wonderful person mm. you know and I'd kind of push something in a selfish manner and she oh, yeah, you know it's okay and I'd be like she's still happy she's still fine I'll keep being selfish you she, recognize your own selfishness this is this is a reflectiveness okay. back on it okay. right I'm a naturally a very self-centered I mean we're all self-centered because we process everything through ourselves. That's right. Now, I, I'm above and beyond that. Very hard to get out of my own skin, I think, sometimes. But, but in just in general, a selfish person that I need to be transparent about that and work on it. It's the first step. That's you know? huge. Yeah, it's, it's a hugely uh, bad thing as well. So. <laughs> it is a thing. Yeah. And it's part of who you've been. Yeah. Well, so I spent 10 years of, of, uh, being a fairly, um, manipulative, um, emotionally, I, I guess you would call it emotionally abusive in that, like if I didn't get my way or I wanted something, I would use emotion as a means of pulling back and kind of withholding uh, affection and love and everything else as a way of getting my way. So that, you know, that's a bad thing. Um, and it was, it was never a situation of being actively, uh, abusive or emotionally abusive in an active manner. Um, but it was always, I, I distance and try and manipulate and control in that manner. And that's, it's not healthy, but at the same time, my wife was under this delusion that, it's okay if I keep praying for him and if I keep being a selfless person and a, you know, in, in her view at the time, a good wife, eventually he'll come around. Mm. And I'm constantly thinking like, man, this is a great life for me. I get to do whatever oh. I want. And, you know, yeah. and eventually she had a breaking point, uh, you know, that she was just getting worn down and, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't help enough when the kids were young and, and so she just got worn out and it just got to a point where, you know, we were, we were in a lot of debt for, um, financial adventures that I was going in, like owning properties and stuff that uh -huh. she was managing. And it was a lot of stress on her. Um, and it just got to a breaking point for her. And I had to hear from her but then all other, like a lot of other sources that like, yeah, Trent, you're a bit of an asshole. And the behavior we've seen you model is, is not healthy, you know, and it's, it's not going to be good. And those were really hard things to accept, like just as a pride thing, you no know, kidding. like to, 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 it's not until I heard it from multiple sources, I couldn't hear it from just her because I could. I could manipulate it and twist right. it and dodge and, you know, um, but 
hearing that from multiple sources and the amount of disappointment in myself and shame and guilt and you know everything that comes with that it's very hard to bear but at some point you have to choose like all right am i going to turn this around or am i going to pretend it's not there you know what are you going to do and you know the her and my children are the most important things to me so there's only one thing i could do so i've done everything i can to uh change that but the thing i found in that is a huge amount of self-realization in the transparency like you're talking about the just being transparent with myself and others that okay i'm not a real social person i'm i'm not naturally selfless i'm i'm not really an entertaining upfront guy i'm there's a lot of things i'm not and there's a lot of things i'm are that are not good either but by just talking about these it keeps it on the forefront of my mind and it helps me be transparent with myself, which is the first real step, I think. It's big, isn't it? That, yeah. I mean, just being able to really look at that. And that's what I'm just sitting here very impressed that you're, you're, uh, you're renaming these characteristics that are not something that you were proud of. <laughs> and you took it and you heard it and you're renaming it again and saying it. And I'm, I'm, I'm just struck well, by that. It's something that you have to keep telling yourself lest you slip back into it very easily. You know, it, I can... You know, I can I can go there, but um, it's yeah, it's just a hard thing to to come to that point of realizing that and and to turn it around and then to allow the the time that it takes the the people that you've heard uh, to allow them the time to uh, gain your there to gain your trust back. For, you know, them for them to, gain, to heal and right. trust you again. That takes time. And that's really discouraging as well, you know, because, you know, there was a time when it came that, you know, I she came to a point of being uh, honest with herself about what was going on and was honest with me about it to where she would kind of just be at a distance and kind of recoil to me to a degree, which was like, whoa, totally different first time, yep. I, you know. And that was that was really hard, um, but luckily I've I've been honest about it and honestly trying to reverse that. And and it's she will say that it, it's it's night and day better, which which is, whew, you know. Um, but I still I still have a really hard time in in other areas of my life where I can be very condescending and. Uh, talk down to people that maybe still have a position of belief that I don't agree with. Okay. And like where both you and I might look at a specific person and say, that's stupid. Yeah. How do you, how do you within ambiguous as life really is, yeah. you know, uh, how do you learn to say, all right, I believe that position is stupid. How do I, kindly and lovingly share with this person that I don't agree with them and that it might be wrong and let's openly and respectfully talk about it rather than just saying that's stupid you know because uh, my wife is still very much a very uh very stringent believer in in what I would consider a certainty type of way mm -hmm. uh, and so that creates a lot of points of conflict and potential conflict and it's it's a very difficult thing to avoid and i have a very strong propensity for just being very 
straight about things. I really appreciate when people call me stupid because it's an opportunity to engage, right? Or call me rude or an asshole or whatever, because it's like, oh, wow, now we can have a genuine conversation. Right. Like, all right, you know, I, I don't take offense to that. You have an opinion that's contrary to what I'm holding right now. This could be interesting rather than what do you do for work? Well, this is what mm. I do for work. And how's the weather there? And, you know, uh, it but that's just a different personality type that is me, not because other people. That's right. Because you because because you're you are very confident. So even just talking about what you just talked about your challenges that to me when vulnerability equals confidence hmm. and and it's funny because just the other day I watched another show that I've had three people tell me to watch on uh, it's Brene Brown mm. she's a qualitative analyst and so talks to people about uh, trust and safety and shame yeah. and her um, one of her things I didn't even realize that came out of my mouth is that courage is you can't have courage without vulnerability yeah. And so what I'm saying to you is being able to just talk out loud about your vulnerabilities is courageous. And I would say that that is something that I have found in my life. Not everyone feels that way. So you're ready to take criticism and you think I'll take it, but not everybody is where you are and able to hold it. Hmm. And so I think understanding that as at a beginning, because again, there's that, I expect the, a high bar that everybody's here and it, it's really hard to go, well, maybe somebody's not open to what I feel like I want to share. Right. They don't want your feedback. Maybe <laughs> that's one thing is find out that. <laughs> and the yeah, other thing yeah. is that I think is really important. And, and, um, and maybe this is something you've tried, but if I was sharing something with you that I believe that was really stupid in your mind and you said, well, I think that's stupid because that's going to be very offensive. Well, I would hope you would start yeah. by acknowledging what I said right. and in acknowledging right. it, to say, oh, I see how you could feel that way, if you do. I mean, I think there's a part that you need to try to understand where that person's coming from. Because sure. they're not saying that to be antagonistic, I would hope. There's something they believe. And if you're challenging a belief, you're getting into feelings. Yeah, Beliefs yeah, yeah. are about feelings, not facts, right? Yeah, I don't feelings, know. <laughs> are, feelings are the... So I'm working on a documentary right now about my own loss of faith. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very scared to attempt to finish it because I'm worried that I'm going to create something that no one cares about. And that's just my own pride. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm still at a point where I really don't know that I have much to say other than what I've lost. Like, I don't want to put just discouragement out into the world. I, right. I'd, I'd like to find my own version of hope and a way of coping with life that, that helps others. And I don't know that I'm there yet, but it's like three years since we started this thing and I'm still not really any closer to putting together the, the final film. Um, and I totally lost like where I was going with that. Um, <laughs> I just got, I'm, like, every time you switch a topic like that, I'm like with you so quickly that I'm like, where, yeah, where were we just a second yeah. ago? Um, Double I was asking you if anyone <laughs> needed your opinion and do you acknowledge what they're saying? Uh, because they're coming from a place of belief and feelings versus facts. So feelings. There, there yeah. we go. Thank okay. you. You're wow. Good job. <laughs> uh, feelings are the thing that came up with me about two years into losing faith. Like two years in, it was still an intellectual exercise mm -hmm. and an, an intellectualization of my worldview. Yep. It was still kind of like, oh, this is that. And here's cognitive dissonance and mm. here's cognitive biases and here's 
all these situations and here's the rationality that deals with this and here's the psychology of why I believe that and the way I protect it and maybe why it might not be true and blah, blah, blah. Those are all intellectual processes that turn on lights and, you know, shut doors and open doors and that's fine. But then like some crazy person comes screaming down the hall that's your emotions eventually that's just lost and is bouncing (laughs) off everything. And like I went to a, like I was posting a lot of stuff through this entity that we've created, Vast Noodle, uh, and staying active on Facebook and sharing what I was going through. But it came to a place where I was attempting to at least meditate and interact with and share my process consistently through social media. And it just got to be way too much. Like I got to a point where I did not, and I'm still kind of there where I don't like to be alone with my thoughts. Like I truly (laughs) have not attempted to meditate because of the discomfort of the existential angst and, and anxiety and that, um, those emotions dealing with that is really hard, but they're a real thing and they're what make us human, right? And I'm going along using a materialist point of view to process my meaning and purpose. But that, that's a square peg in you, a round you hole. You got it. And you're not going to find meaning and purpose um, through a materialist point of view. And uh, a, a subjective point of view or you know spiritual subjective experiential point of view um is not going to give you a clear picture on the data either it's a it's a combination of the material materialist uh inquisition and the subjective personal experience it's the combination of those two that creates the picture of what's beyond i think and i I think I came with the full on, you know, new atheist kind of critique and arguments and everything against religion and realized that you cannot argue with a materialist point of view as far as the thing that it eliminates. Right. Because it's it's objective evidence. There's no getting around that. But it doesn't explain still things like purpose and meaning. Right. And hence like why on earth emotion and you know all that it's um wow there, there's a lot to think about and yeah. and um <laughs> i i think you've really hit something that resonates with me because lately i've um had a couple occasions where i've received a message that in one but i now uh, are we went, talking text or yeah God? i was just gonna tell you i was gonna <laughs> kind of skip skip right over that but you mentioned it i mean you caught me on it so i actually went to an intuitive an intuitive. Intuitive. So I paid money to go to this woman who said that she she was fabulous, that she just uh, hears and see things for me. I can believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And she'll just pass along what is said or heard. And so it was awesome. And I would go again. But one of the things she said was, which I think might be a lot like you, is there's, I do a lot of talking about, I think, I know, and I don't do a lot of I feel. Hmm. So when yeah, I don't val- I don't valid I don't valid I don't value my feelings at this point. Here's all right. So you're talking to into it. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Let me interrupt. It's um, okay. I took my feelings and put them behind me as a way of, first of all, saving my marriage. Yep. 
because I felt like I wanted to do this or I wanted to yes. go on a surf trip or I yes. wanted to buy that yeah. and I wasn't being fair because of my feelings. So yes. I took my feelings and I was like, all right, put feelings back over there. Yes. Use the logic of fairness, rationality yes. and yeah. reason to treat my wife fair. Yeah. Use that and do fair. So I did fair. And then, you know, my feelings and everything else were telling me one thing and I was given this mm. view of God and religion that are intermingled obviously and i was like these feelings are misleading me i cannot trust them so mm -hmm. again more feelings back yep. there and then when i was in uh high school and early part of college that was kind of the beginning of trying to protect myself from feelings i had a really bad kind of relationship and breakup that you know i was like protect feelings you know so that first of all they're protected and then i had to protect myself from my feelings and protect my wife and family from my feelings and yeah. then i had to dismiss my feelings from my own process of understanding mm -hmm. all of this right and so i still empathize and feel things very deeply for like people that are on the other side of injustice but on the quick and common interactions i'm very um unempathetic and uninterested in people in general which wow. which sounds but there's a very very like if i on hbo there's the series uh i think it's barbershop or something where lebron james and other athletes and then usually like a comedian will just sit and talk about mm -hmm. life and I found myself just crying in the tub, <laughs> watching it and just, you know, empathizing with their experience of life and injustice and inequality and what they were talking about and seeing that. I empathize very deeply with that. But on the common, shallow level, I'm very detached from the day to day kind of like I've tried to go to a food pantry and help people once a week, you know, but on the surface interaction level of it, I'm just like, there's no hope for you, man. I don't, oh I don't God. feel this. I, 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 I don't feel you. like I'm doing anything here. You know, we, we are so much alike. So I volunteered here. First of all, I want to, I want, don't want to forget to tell you that I, about uh, feelings and in, emotions, feelings okay. and emotions. So I volunteered, that's it, feelings and emotions. But I, when I came up to Portland, which was only in 2006, I wanted to do some volunteering. Uh, I was working at the hospital and I volunteered patient sitting. And in my head, I had this vision, a romanticized vision of what I'd be doing. And it wasn't it. Then I tried teaching English as a second language. wasn't my bag. I've gone to the th sign up for the food pantry, other things, and I am. I know my heart wants to do it, and I feel like I have so much to give. But when I get there in the real practical time, what am I going to do? And am I going to have a hard time with it? And I, gonna, I don't feel so like I don't, I'm reaching anybody. I, it's because it's one. But you know, one thing you say to one person will make a difference. So I get it, but I I feel you because I'm I feel the same thing. Yeah. I. Like, here I am. I'm in between jobs. And when I was still employed, I just got done in May. I was like, I really want to go down to the border and just take some of those babies. And I'll just take them. I'll just take them in my car and run. Like, I want to, I could do it. What's, what's so what? Uh, and now I have the time. And I tried to heap, uh, help the asylum. I would seekers. advise not kidnapping children. I know. But I was like, I'll, but at least they'll be somebody safe. I, right. I know. I wouldn't really do it. But that was my instinct. My, right. like, go help. Go help big, big time is what, and I hear you saying one small thing, but mm. it isn't one small thing because it, it is all related. Yeah. So one small thing for one person turns to something for someone else. And yeah. uh, I think it's huge. But anyway, um, I'm still looking for that right thing. 
Uh, and I'm going to be going with a friend, a new acquaintance that I've met who's going to bring me to some volunteering opportunities. Because I also had this real issue about uh, obligation, about mm-hmm. trying something and then saying you have to, you know, you commit to doing it for a certain amount of t- days or weeks. Right. Right. Um, but this is related, p- connecting back to that. I did volunteer and still continue to volunteer at the Center for Grieving Children. Ooh. Do you know we have that in Portland? No. So it's, a, it's an awesome organization. It's a national organization. The one in Portland's been there for I don't know how many years, decades. Um, and what it is, it's a safe place for any kids that have lost a loved one to go. And they have an hour a week that they go and they can process feelings and mm. be with others who have had, had a same loss. This group has expanded so they also have uh, a bereaving parents group, so f- parents that have lost a child. Uh, TLC for loved ones that are, you know, in long-term care, or hospice care. So there's several different groups that they have, parents, uh, kids, and the kids get broken up into different age groups. So I have always had an attraction and affinity for things related to death. Hmm. And I, a couple of years ago, said I'm going to do this. I feel ready to do the Center for Grieving Children. And I had a volunteer and say that I would be a volunteer for a year. And that was like, oh, what if, based on my volunteer experience, I'm not going to like it. But the thing that was so transformative is to be at, what I do there is I'm a peer, I'm a facilitator for a group. So I, I and another facilitator will have a group of eight, seven, ten kids, and we hold that space for them for an hour to do whatever we're going to do. It could be an activity, it could be just talking, playing, whatever. So, but in order to be qualified to be a facilitator, you have to go through, I think it was a 40-hour training program on grief and feelings and emotions. Mm. So like you, I had put all my feelings behind for most of my life, actually until about five years ago, because I was just getting things done, working, taking care of kids, just going. And I didn't even consider feelings. Like I didn't even have a hobby because everything was about my kids. I was a single parent or or I was working. And so this course was the beginning of changing my life, my recent change, because you had to learn everything about feelings because you had to experience it for yourself to understand things that kids would be feeling and to learn the skill of facilitating. And one of the things that I took, there were a lot of different great things that I took with me, but one of them was that they really said feelings are emotions and the word motion is intentional. They are to be worked through Hmm. so that you shouldn't carry a backpack of feelings around on you, on your back, because it's just going to weigh you down. There's some feelings that are unexpressed or unworked through. You can't express every feeling. But if you think about that as something is, you're feeling something, you act on it, you express it, whether it's in writing or verbally to the person you're with, you do something with it. And if you don't, it's going to be back there influencing things. Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I've, I've seen that in, uh, I've seen that in my life and in others that I'll leave nameless. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if if you if you don't unpack it, it's just going to stay in the backpack on your back. And it's going to be heavy and it's going to influence and unbalance everything you're you doing. Got it. You yeah. got it. And so for me, I feel free because I don't have any feelings unexpressed. Today, I Whoa, am honest a, and open. That's so. a that's a statement I haven't heard. I feel free because I don't have any feelings that are unexpressed. I don't. And you know, I did it with you. I, huh. And I didn't need to, but I did. I said, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to want to do this. Can I think about it? Like, I'm not going to just bail on you. That was my transparency. I'm like, I'm just going to go over that. He's going to get that. And 
you wrote back a lovely answer and I was like, okay, I'm in. And so that <laughs> worry was still there a little bit, but I always, I was committed. Yeah. But because I said it out loud, it kind of, it takes some of your power away to make me feel nervous because I've already told you I am also. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I am. You seem so nervous right now. Too, I'm not right? anymore, <laughs> but I was when I came in. But I do disclose a lot. Maybe yeah. I don't need to, but I'm a discloser. I've never heard that term really either, but that's, yeah, that. Is disclosing in any way a negative thing or, or an ability to control or manipulate a situation? Absolutely. Really? Because I could see myself using that to manipulate things. Absolutely. Like, like um, I'm real selfish, so I'm just going to keep acting selfish. Or I'm I don't really know. nervous about sitting by myself over here. I just wonder if anybody's going to sit with me, but I'll be okay. You know, right. that is total manipulation. Yeah. Instead yeah. of saying, I'm really nervous, can you come sit with me? Like, the answer is yes or no, right? right? I mean, you probably don't have worries about people sitting with you, but I'm saying these types of things that we go I over, just avoid social situations, <laughs> well, so yeah, I don't. We try to. I try to as well. I, they're not my favorite thing. Um, but, again, because I own my feelings, I don't worry about impressing people anymore. Um, at work, I want to impress with my work product. And but, so you started to confront and interact with your feelings that you had had packed up for some time. Oh and I mean, years after years. two divorces and raising children, you've got to have quite a backup. A like, lot of feelings. And, what, and that were, because what was the, because my motto was two things. What's the point? It's not going to change anything to wallow in whatever. And as you were packing the feelings oh, yeah. up or as you were letting up them a little go. Bit, like, Oh, that really makes me mad. Oh, well, why would it be mad? Because it's not going to solve anything anyway. Well, Put and it I would in the think backpack, it was done. Well, keep carrying it. Right. But I didn't think I was done. I thought it was gone. Right. But it really wasn't ever gone. Ooh. And so the other thing that, and I didn't realize again, probably five or six years ago, what a, it's kind of a pessimistic thing, and I consider myself an um, optimistic person, um, is hope for the best but expect the worst. And I'm like, that's how I live my life. So this is really funny because I've said this to a couple of people, they don't believe it, but every time in my career when somebody said, there's going to be an emergency meeting in the conference room at 10, I'd be like, yeah, we're going to get a bonus, we're going to get a raise, they're going to tell us to leave for the <laughs> afternoon. And everybody else says, they're laying us all off. Like, who's going? And they're going to that place. And I'm always thinking, something great is behind that door. Right. And so... I most often am disappointed. Uh, I'm seeing a great little like <laughs> video clip of like everyone just like in file with their heads down and you're kind of doing I mean, a dance true. going in. It's true. <laughs> yeah, that is so I, so that is true. And so you're I, all fired. This is such an opportunity. Know. Oh no, that's not true. But, but, um, so I always have done that and then I go, Hey, I don't have any expectations. So when it doesn't happen, I'm not really disappointed because what have I lost? I didn't have anything I expected anyway. Right. So that's not really fair to myself or to others to have no expectations. So it took me a while. Um, now, why is it not fair to not have expectations of others? Um, I think that, well, I'm saying it's not fair because I think it's... Uh, I've found a lot of freedom in low expectations. <laughs> How would you feel if, if, well, would you feel anything if I came here saying... I'm not even going to worry about it because I'm not thinking. Well, I he's don't a big verbalize cheese. it. Yeah, but but I don't. I don't expect like. I I realize how um, insufficient and in everything I can be at times, and I I use that as a way of not necessarily having low expectations of others in a bad way, but as a way of saying like. Trent, you drop the ball all the time. You, you can't. 
and and there's valid reasons sometimes as to why you drop the ball. And these people, though you might not know it right now exactly why, they might have a very valid reason why they are that's going on behind the scenes. So just, you know, pat them on the back and say, that's all right. You know, I'll talk to you later or whatever. Um, is is that not really having low expectations or? I, I don't know. I... I I think you said it when you said you don't necessarily express it, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, but I feel maybe I'm projecting. So I would hate for someone to have. No, oh, I would hate that n- I came with no expectations to anybody. I mean, in some ways that's a gift. Yeah. But in some ways, it I, I equate it with having uh, lowest estimation. Like what? Like I don't I don't expect anything out of them anyway. Like what does that say about your esteem and how you hold them in right. your esteem? See, I have a weird thing, like, growing up, um, no one uh, expected anything out of, like, I never felt like people thought I could do anything, really. Like, I knew my parents loved me um, and would be proud of me no matter what. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of freedom in that. Yep. But there was never, oddly, I never felt like anyone expected, like, Trent's going to do great things. I don't think I've done great things. But what I'm saying is that I knew personally that I could do exactly whatever I wanted to do, given enough thinking and hard work. I just did. And everything that I wanted to happen, I worked towards those ends. And I tried to infuse a, you know, as much of a pushback against all of that in accordance to like standard uh, you know morals and expectations you know I wasn't gonna like I want to be the you know I wasn't gonna push some desire or will that was inappropriate or anything else but like I wanted to go live at the beach and live out of my car all summer when I was 17 and I made it happen and I made it happen for several other friends and it was just a thing like that and I was like I wanted to do this. It happened. And so I started doing other things where I thought like, I would like that to happen. Well, what do you have to do? You have to do all these things to then do this, to then make that happen. So I do that. And I, I never, and, and I kept doing things that people seemed to be very surprised by. Like, we never expected you to be able to do anything. And like in my own head, I was like, I always knew I could do it. But I also at the same time knew you didn't expect that I could do anything but that's fine it doesn't matter to you that they didn't expect that you could do no anything. but i also would think that i'm weird in and like it, slightly on the spectrum of like if there's a spectrum and there's a line where people say they're on the autistic spectrum i yeah. think i'm just on the other side of the yeah. line like i'm not going to claim i'm autistic yeah. in any way but i'm yeah. real close yeah to being close to being on the you know yeah i get it, it so there's there's an oddity to me. I get that. Um, and sometimes it's a benefit and sometimes it's a... Trent's kind of weird, you know? I don't know. <laughs> I um, I like to call it like being um, complicated sometimes. 
I mean, and I say unique. My wife might agree with you. My, right. I mean, it's, you know, and sometimes I'm feel, we, my head, a girlfriend and I, we both said we would call it fancy. We're just fancy. We're just fancy. That sounds a nicer way than saying we're complicated uh, or complex or all that. Um, I, I don't know about expectations. It's funny that you picked up on that word. Uh, it has been a theme in my life whether it's expectations by the rules we're supposed to follow, that we're supposed to get to church at a certain time, that followed me all through everything that actually takes us way back to the beginning about expectations of others in leaders. So, like, when I came to this conversation with you, um, I didn't have any expectations, but from small earmarks in your email, uh, even seeing... uh, your signature on the email and that you had different links, it started to create expectations and the oddity of some of the things said in your first email gave me a little bit of an expectation of she's going to be an interesting conversation. And and these were all contained within like one sentence, right? So there was a, there was some expectation there, but I didn't come to the conversation with like any overly high expectations or anything else. I think, if you're curious enough, anyone can be interesting if you're brave enough to continually ask the questions. Right. Um, but I don't know. I, I feel like I'm constantly trying to not have expectations. Well, I think even the format in which you've uh, obtained guests for this have shown that. Like, to just go out there and not put any qualifications on the invite on Craigslist. <laughs> and, you, and, I, and when I wrote to you and just said, oh, I was just, you know, wrote you whatever flip answer. And I'm like, he doesn't know me from anything. And the fact that you answer and say, yeah, yeah, let's talk. And I was like, wait, remember, I couldn't believe you didn't do a screening call. It is just trusting, right? So. I mean, what's there to be scared of? I mean, if, if you bring a knife or a gun, I mean, it's going to be, that's going to be awkward. But it was other awkward. than that, awkward, <laughs> awkward to die. Yeah. But I mean, what's really? the, you know, I, I had a guest that, you know, was, and that was awkward, but. It was cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's the big you deal? Just, yeah. And do you learn from everyone you do? Do you take away yeah. something? Is it helping you? Yeah. That's what I'm yeah. so impressed about with this is that it feels like it's about giving something to the world, but also helping you no, process. No, this is all about me processing. And I know by me processing, but sharing it, yeah. that it helps others. Yeah. Okay. So again, a very self-centered thing. I'm, I am doing this. I assigned myself this whole thing just so I would take faith seriously, right? I started this whole process of starting Bass Noodle and doing this documentary because I came to a point where I was either like, I'm going to look into this or I'm going to just let it go, right? And I knew if I'm going to look into this, I might as well do it in a creative manner and in a manner that puts my feet to the fire to actually get to the bottom of this. So I assigned myself, again, things to to make that happen. And I'm still on that journey. And some people have been able to benefit from it. And it's my personal opinion that these kind of conversations that are open and truly asking, you know, sometimes uncomfortable questions and discussing things that might upset some people that are very, very valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, And sharing the experience of like, yes, I live with doubt. I have doubts and I might be an atheist. I don't know. I'm an agnostic currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, just being able to say that at least brings the the conversation to the surface and holds people accountable that might have been able to just skip down the lane 
and not really be challenged on some of their inappropriate things being put in the certainty corral. And I, I think that's a good thing. It's so. great. Um, I, so you identify as agnostic today. I would say that. And I would... Would you check a box on a form? Yeah, because some days I truly do believe, like, I think there might be something. Yes. And then other days I'm like, oh, shit, there's nothing. Oh. And it, it hurt. It just, it's that, it's just that heart explosion and emotions in your head, like, oh, no, there's nothing, you know? And it, what does nothing hard. mean to you? That, that this is all just 100%, uh, by dumb luck chance and it means nothing and you die you die and there's nothing you know now i i necessarily i i've come to a point of um realizing that most likely i'd say it's a 99 percent likelihood that death is the same as before you were born mm -hmm. i would agree nothing you know um, well, nothing that you remember today. Nothing that I remember today. And it, I don't remember it being painful because I don't remember it. Right. And I had no angst about it or anything else. All I have is the current pain of realizing the magnitude of the incomprehensible luck that we have to be here right now, mm. sharing this experience and experiencing this life. It's astounding. And then it's all going to go away. And that, like, is that the is most painful thing, right? And, you know, to, to deal with that, you know, I don't know. It, now, I could be wrong. There could be something after this. I can't rule it out, but I don't know. I, I understand, and I, and I see the pain. I've never gotten to the point where I think it's nothing. Yeah. Um, and I would say I'm agnostic. I... I definitely don't, but if I think that atheist means, it just means a higher power of some kind. Atheist means a higher it, power of some kind? I'm asking you. Well, the technical definition of atheist is atheist, kind of like asexual, yes. like no sex. Yeah. It's just, I. No, they lack no belief yeah. in a god or in, gods. Or, they or would gods. say god or, or power. gods. Or, or I power. Mean, pa so, <laughs> I know, I, can, I make a distinction between a person or personification of some kind of current that's always around us. And um, I told you I've always been fascinated with death. And as a young girl, when I started reading novels, I read a lot of the occult stuff and just have always been attracted to that. Um, and just learning different funerary rites and different customs. And it's just been something I, I don't know what's all, it's always been there right beside me. Mm -hmm. um, so I had gotten to a place in my life. I was in my thirty-ish, uh, and I really felt like I believed in reincarnation. I felt like it explained a lot. It, it filled in lots of holes. I wouldn't completely disagree with and you there. There was a book that felt life-changing to me. Um, that was called A Soul's Journey, and I, I read it all those years ago, and and it, I remember it changing things. Um, and then my mother, my father died, and then my mother got sick, and I ended up quitting my job to take care of her. And she was at home when she died. We had sisters that would help as well. Um, and with her death, so my father had died, and that didn't challenge any of my beliefs. My beliefs were: I feel like it's reincarnation is the mo is the thing that I can most feel makes sense. And and then there's that kismet. There's something I feel like sometimes things just work out for me and I and you could call it luck I don't know I just um so so anyway when my mom died I just couldn't imagine her being reincarnated as someone else 
So I wanted to picture her. Like, what do I picture this person that was here beside me yesterday? And what, how does she exist if she does exist? And, you know, it's then when I started thinking, thinking instead of feeling, right, that sound never ends. So, right, sound waves true, don't stop. Yeah. So what about the energy of a person? Like, you know that somebody is not just their body. And so does, hmm. what's the end of that? And what, it, you know, does it need air to breathe? I, it just all questioned everything. And basically since that time, which was 93, I don't know what I believe. I know what I don't believe. Have you heard of, I think it's called apophatic theology? No. It's a study of God in the negative, as in studying all the things that an idea of God would not be. And when you when you look into the technical definitions of it and its boundaries or whatever, it's it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's apophatic theology, but uh, mm-hmm. if if you remind me, I'll email you a link okay. or, or. But it when I read over it, it was like it's just another to me. It's another tool and a way of looking at things that kind of gives a little bit clearer, helps clear up certain parts of the picture, if you will. Um. So back to your like. Make, coming to the crossroads of making the decision that you either, not, either need to put the work into it and figure it out or just let it be. Yeah. How, how do you think your life will change if you make one of those choices? Uh, I'm, I'm at the point now of feeling like I'll never be able to make one of those choices. I realize that it's, you know, the, the journey of, you know, exploration is the, is the destiny. It's, That's right. You know, you can't. I, I was just talking again about this yesterday. Uh, you've heard the saying, God of the gaps theology. Yeah. And people say like, uh, you know, something unexplainable. Well, that's God. That's God, right. You know, right. Um, or God does it. Uh, in a way, I feel like that's appropriate, but it's a twisted way. Um, if you keep using a um, objective... Uh, materialist empirical point of view or uh, process of inquiry to look into the gaps Mm -hmm. as a way of discerning what is what's truth and everything else eventually by investigating into the gaps is where you find either god or the lack of god right so looking into all the unexplainable right is what we have still to do as further inquiry. Now, honestly, think it's all kind of fractal. Do you know what that means? Yes. That it's just, it's like you're continually zooming in on something that so, is one thing right. and then it goes to another. And it's, it feels like everything is just infinitely fractal where, you know, you stand on the beach and you look at the horizon and you think, you know, truth is on that horizon. And as soon as you get to that horizon, the truth has gone further. Right. It will always, the, the end result of this search will always be a horizon type of situation. It's never going to be something that you, there's here and no further to go. Right. It just because seems. In, in, in your view of looking in that, again, I feel like it really means is as your view as who you are today. If you look in that same gap, in a year or five years from now, you will see different things because you have grown and accumulated experience and different thoughts and ideas that are going to in- inject your bias on that view as well. Sure. Right. So it's ever changing. Um, it's it's an interesting thing because 
I don't feel a need to define. I used to want to know. So I love to know. I love to get to the bottom of everything. I, I tend to overanalyze or I'll look, all, you know, keep looking beneath the surface. Um, that can be a really helpful skill to have. But right. um, I don't feel a need to know. I, I think I don't know why. I just feel carefree, whatever it is, it is. Um, I don't. And yet I believe, again, that there's something guiding forces somewhere. There's too many strange things that can't be explained intellectually, right? It's, it's again, right. it's put, trying to put words and intellectualizing the feelings that are hard to, that are hard, I don't know how you do it. So the, uh, you know, material, you're obviously not a materialist, but you I wouldn't. I like to think I'm not. Yeah you, yeah, you wouldn't deny that the materialist points of view have value in discerning material things. Absolutely. But you would be, you would also be saying that there, as a mystic, that there's more to this whole thing that is inexplicable within the words that we're capable it, yes. of. Yes. Right. And maybe unknowable. And un maybe unknowable. I, I you know, and, and hopefully <laughs> death is that gate by which we go through that we then go into that and this continues it would be my hope people ask me if i believe i say i hope you know you hope. that's that's all i can do at this point um so i came to a realization a, a mental picture for me and again i've probably said this on this podcast sorry i'm gonna repeat myself um like a materialist point of view you know what a jumbotron is yes so a materialist point of view to me is like standing one inch from the jumbotron what you're going to do is you're going to see a red, green, and a blue dot, right. RGB. Right. And that will be the material truth of what's happening right there. Right? Yeah. Right there. Yes. You it. see it. Yeah. But you will not get the full picture Correct. because you're one inch from it. Right. Now, if you back up, you know, a uh, hundred feet, yeah. all of a sudden you're going to see that two people are getting engaged. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, these material data points are telling you the bigger picture that's yes. going on elsewhere. Yes. So at the same time, a, a mystical point of view and a materialist point of view are equally valid. You don't get that mystical perspective without the right. interaction with the material points of, of view as well. And there's ways that you can misstep and overstep on both parts of that that are not justifiable, right. right? The mystical point of view or the spiritual or religious point of view can't come in and determine right or wrong within a materialist right. scientific process. Like these are undeniable, but they mean pretty much nothing. Right. They only mean the data point that it encapsulates, period. Right. But you can use all those data points to, you know, create a trajectory towards maybe a final, not final destination, but a potential destination of truth. Yes. And when all those data points line up, you can start to create a picture beyond. But if, unless you're there, you know, measuring those data points there, you can't really make it a materialist thing, but you can project a picture. And that's where that mystical point of view comes in and becomes a little bit more uh, helpful, I think, mm -hmm. in, in that process of discerning meaning and purpose and all that and so to be evolved is to have the view of being able to adjust your view depending on what you're trying to see I mean what is you know I mean it, it shouldn't be an either or we have to embrace both sides of that because the the yeah, dot so. the pixel is only the, the the whole is only the good as good as the sum of all its parts 
Right. Right. So yeah. they ma- things matter on the small scale and the large scale. And so how does a human trying to figure out their place in the world and their world place in the it or the is, how do you go between those places and not, not become insane? <laughs> right. Right. I mean, right. It's, sometimes it's so huge to think about that it, you, you almost are looking over the edge and going, whoa, like if I actually look in there, it's, that's going to blow my mind. Well, yeah, there's the idea of, I actually have that drawn out. So weird. You are such a doppelganger. <laughs> I have that drawn out on a sticky note, uh, this line going across a sticky note and the yeah. stick man's on the edge yeah. of that abyss. Yeah. And over there is, you know, uh, the abyss the abyss of you know nihilistic atheism to a degree to me that's what it represents yeah. the the depth of all of that that's just uncomprehensible so to me to write all that off and leave it as nihilistic atheism uh is to fall into that and i just don't want to pragmatically i just don't want to be there i don't like my wife and i just spent our 17 year anniversary in london and for the first two days, I was a nasty person to be around because I was so pessimistic and cynical about, like, what's it all mean? It's just horrible, hor- you know, just mm. negative and cynical. And she didn't complain. She's an eternal, upbeat, extrovert, happy person. And, you know, she's probably the only person that could ever put up with me in that way. But, you know, towards the end of the first two days, I was just like, geez, if I had to hang around me, that would (laughs) suck. Right. And, you know, at some point you have to choose to at least put one foot in one and one foot in the other and and allow for the um, embrace of that mystical experience of joy. I mean, and it it can even get to the point where like sex seems like a and, you know, like an like an insect type of interaction where it's like a little part of one you know on the nature show gets hard and the other you know then the the female gets moist and and it becomes this just mechanical like it doesn't mean anything there's no any you know and like even in my own life it when i consider it like i'd start to feel that way towards it and i was like man where am i going to where your most basic instincts of reproduction are being affected by this, uh, you know, materialist point of view, you know, that I'm not able to dis, uh, to pull myself out of that and just experience the just, beauty of something. Right. That, you know, it's kind of a wake-up call to, to say, you're going to become a very hard and grumpy old man that's mm-hmm. very unpleasant to be around, or you're going to choose to step back into... The beauty of things and appreciate that and move forward in that while not completely disregarding this but i'm i'm such a all into whatever i'm into that i think i went too far in that materialist inquiry and it it took a toll on my emotions and my life and the able to see beauty able i have another sticky note i have a room full of sticky notes i look like a crazy man if you ever saw it but uh it like the most beautiful parts of life become the most painful when you lose your faith sometimes because in that beautiful moment of connection and empathy, like with your own child, you then feel like 
this is nothing and this is it and it will never be. Now, some people will say because this is temporary, it becomes that much more valuable. Well, maybe if you've been raised to think that other way, but if you've been raised to think this is beautiful and it will be here later, to lose that is like being at a factory job that you loathe, thinking you have a weekend off while everyone else knows that the boss is making you all work the weekend and the bell rings and you're splitting to go to the lake and fishing and, you know, drink beers for the weekend, whatever. And then everyone looks at you like, no, we have to stay, you know, and you've just lost your weekend. It's that crushing moment. It's the disappointment in things yeah. aren't what they seem. Yeah. And, and how do you get over that? Well, not, well, continuing to be, um, inquisitive and curious and trying to get to something that doesn't haunt you. Yeah, I'm definitely, I feel, you ever see the videos of the, um, the recycling machines that are two yep. metal things yes. and they just go like that yeah. and they'll throw a couch in and yes. it just slowly like, yeah. like I s started to feel like life was that and that represented death wow. and it's like everything's thrown in there and it's just yeah. eventually, it's just a maw of death and destruction coming for you you know it's just ugh. and at some point you, you just have to choose to um be open to the mystery of why things are beautiful and to continue to look into that uh and to use a materialist approach in that as well but to also allow yourself to be bathed in that mystical beauty of what is and the experience of being alive, you know? So it's, it's a hard thing. <laughs> I, I think that, um, I don't know where, where it came from. And I think, again, it has increased the older I've, uh, become is I, I find joy in everything. Um, not, it's not like I never get down or I'm not critical, but like, wow, what a great night we got to take a drive. And I saw this road that I've never seen before. And we like simple things. It doesn't have to be big. Um, it's just the always discovering, and I think I happen to try to practice gratefulness, or I just am, and I, like, if we're late for something, but it means that we took this detour that brought us to a place we would have never known, that's actually a gift, right? and it doesn't bother me, and, like, even just road rage, right? Like, I don't have road rage generally. Um, I would say maybe once every six months there's somebody that's just making me mad, but really, yeah. I have, my ego's not in it. I'm just doing my thing, and I just assume everybody's doing their best. And if they're doing their best and they're cutting me off, I don't assume intention. I think they cut me off. I don't know why. And I always make up stories. So that is probably a coping, right? So I make up these right. stories that can rationalize these things in my head. So my son is, he is a vocal driver and he's like, oh yeah, this guy's going to pass me. And he's making these comments. I said, what does that impact your life? Well, why should he do that? I said, well, why shouldn't he? You don't know what his story is. Maybe he's going to the hospital. You know, I go to these places where... I think I rationalize that there is no evil intent, that people generally are good, that things, that, I guess that's what I believe, that, that I believe in the goodness of people. I believe people have a choice to be good, but I, I know that were I to decide to embrace my selfish side, the malevolence that I could achieve, right? I, to admit, that's the thing I... I wrote that down on another sticky note this morning that we live in such a, a guarded, shielded, artificial environment being in this safe, mm -hmm. well-to-do country. Your shadows don't need to and come out in the light much. Yeah, we, <laughs> we think we're good people, but right. have, you, have you ever been starving 
and had to think like I could steal this from this other family because if I don't, you know, the, just the drive of starvation. Yeah. Like who among us has really experienced that? And every person that whines about people attempting to come across the border, all of them I would think would admit were if you were that person and the drug cartels were killing right. off your family, you mean to tell me you wouldn't be swimming across that river? Right. Now, I'm not, I'm still not so much to say that we have to like dis, uh, distinguish, uh, extinguish our borders or anything right. like that. But the empathy of dealing with people in a lesser situation and what can be done about it, you know, I think that needs to be embraced and considered because you know, as soon as you start thinking you're a good person, man, I, you, you, we've just never really been tested to the level of so many other times in history have. And there's, there's, there's outliers and we, we turn them into saints. That's right. You know, the, these outliers that said, I'm at this point and I have this incredibly difficult decision to make. Right will I victimize others to put myself first or will I stand up and risk my neck to uh, help others, you know? But I have a question. Your, your word struck me of malevolence. So um, my, 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 big, my ultimate question is, do you, since you've been on this journey and you've been looking and searching and getting the answers, and recognizing that you've said several times that you've self-centered person Mm -hmm. now that you've recognized it and you're working to change it has that changed your happiness do you feel as a happier person i i recognize the better the the more uplifted disposition of the ones i love around me wow and that that's really that's a gift we interviewed a guy uh, when we went across the country. Um, his name's Frank Schaefer, and his father was a huge Francis Schaefer, huge guy in the um, evangelical movement. Mm-hmm. And he now is uh, both atheist and believer. He's you know essentially mm. an agnostic, but he really speaks out against the kind of to a degree patriarchal norms and and everything else that imbued him with this me 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 i'm the man yada 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 and didn't put into check and protect his family from the vibrato or the you know the man that was him right and he came to a, a breaking point and realizing the look in to look into the faces of those that are around him that he was influencing and to see the the pain and suffering that he was causing, you know, to, to take that as a litmus test of how you were doing to really look into the eyes and to spend the time. And are you looking into the eyes of others to, to gauge how you're doing? Mm. Or are you just looking self-referentially how you're feeling? Mm-hmm. You know, I've, he said it in a more succinct manner, but I 100% can see the engagement of my children and the the happiness and more contentment uh of my wife and that's really and and it's obviously you have emotions with that and so what is that emotion i don't know it just it 
it makes me really, really happy to, to know that the, the things that I value most are, are flourishing. Um, but you know, like before I valued essentially, I thought I was valuing all of us the most, but I was really valuing me most. But I guess there's a sense of I've come closer to the truth of what really affects me and having a a longer term influence. And there's a deeper peace in that, I I imagine, that that is creating the emotions of of knowing that. So So I'm just going to say this. I I am um, struck by your humility and your depth of feelings and the f- and I'm I want to go back and I'm going to listen to this because I want to know if you said I am self-centered or I have a tendency to be self-centered or is it a tendency to act self-centered and I don't like the labels you give yourself sitting here and I understand mm. and appreciate your honesty about it but it's kind of like um I have the tendency to uh have a short temper but I am not a short temper I am me and my bumps and lumps and all of myself it doesn't define you even though you have a tendency for that no and and I and every time you say I was or I had a tendency to be self-centered I I I am I'm in multiple places looking at you and one of them is wow that's brave and I said that brave and courageous to Mm -hmm. to say that out loud and to hear your own voice saying that and you know you hear people talking about the power of saying in the mirror I'm beautiful I'm beautiful like those messages you are you're continuing to give yourself those messages that almost feels like a I'm just gonna say it I mean just it feels like self-flagellation to me that you are saying it out loud there's a there's a degree of that maybe but it's not some it's something that by saying that, I know I've admitted that, and I'm, I'd imagine there's a degree of pride in there as well. Well, that's that, good. That, like, okay, I'm, I've been able to admit this, and I'm proud of that. So there's I get pride that, right? There. That's why I think there's courage and pride. I just feel like, like you feel to me, as someone with the intent and curiosity and depth and, and just a big-hearted person that you were behaving in a way that w- wasn't getting you what you needed in your life and it and it was causing harm to others. And so you made a change. But I don't think that you're that person at heart that was behaving in a certain way. I think that may, maybe that was a reaction to something else. And so mm. do you, you know, it sounds like part of you is, is, have you found a way to name your true self? Hmm. Because you're like labels. I think you, you like to label things. That's possible. I don't know. That's pretty, pretty. So what was that vocal. question again? That it was struck a me. question about was, is the way that you're behaving, the old you, that your behavior, not you, your behavior, was it a reaction to something else instead of this is who you now, are at core? Now, I've, I've tried to argue several times with, with my wife uh, that the, a lot of the ways I was behaving were reinforced by... I'm not an extreme left person and mm-hmm. I don't even like saying the term patriarchal anymore mm-hmm. because I feel like it's misrepresented and overstated in mm-hmm. some ways. Mm-hmm. I'll admit, obviously, it's been overdone and it's been oppressive. I get that. 
Um, but um, I feel that in the very like the man is the leader of the home and the woman shall stay home and do you know i feel that you know you take this whole book you put it in a place of certainty and it defines roles and it defines right and wrong and but yet there's so many people that come up with all these different outcomes of belief and outcomes of how people live the specific thing that i was involved in uh, Seventh Adventism, which has a lot of great people in it and a lot of good things about it. It's just not for me anymore. I'll leave it at that. Um, I feel like it, parts of it, the way I took it, might have reinforced some of my behavior mm-hmm. or or allowed me to justify it to myself to a degree. You know, like a sense of entitlement that came with the message. Is the, I mean, I'm not sure I'm translating that or kind of know. a sense of entitlement of I am I am the leader because of your and gender. people need to listen. Yeah, yeah, people need to listen to me and I need to have control yes. and a say, you know, that was the model that you were brought up with. Right. To a degree, um, there's always going to be a more dominant figure in relationships yes. generally. And, and this is something that's very interesting to me that I've come to understand even more so by uh, getting close to people that are in the gay community, that they, they do not escape roles of masculine and feminine mm-hmm. in a stereotypical manner as right. well. Right. You know, there, there's, um, so it's just interesting. Um, and yeah, I, I, I sometimes think that that might have had somewhat of a at least dulled my perception of really being more fair about everything or like my wife when we first were married she worked as a physical therapist uh in Gorham and would you know drive 45 minutes to work before it was light out and drive back after and I still expected her to cook clean Mm. blah 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 Mm -hmm. and you know i'm i'm i was working as well trying to start an architecture business and then i was trying to start a photography business it's paid off for her in the long run but back in those days Mm -hmm. it was kind of like i wasn't lifting enough of a finger to help in those things and expecting her to pay for everything and uh clean and cook and I still went on surf trips, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. such an a-hole, <laughs> you know? And, and so like what, what, uh, what, how did I justify that in my mind? You know, I, I think a lot of it just came with, well, these are your defined roles, honey. And, you know, you need to do those. And, and she wasn't, she wasn't pushing back enough. She should have put me in my place or at least had a very direct conversation with me about it more than she did. I'm sure she attempted to in her way that in our young marriage was insufficient for dealing with the depth of my self-centeredness at the time, I would say. Okay. And we were talking about this just the other day. And I think the problems in our marriage were probably an 80, 20 thing, right? Like she had some responsibility, but not as much as me. So, you know, uh, that being said, I, I, 
haven't put a lot of thought into it, but I would I would think that there are degrees of a very traditional uh, conservative religion that reinforce a self-centered nature around the male yep. part of the relationship, you know? Yeah. So, so I think that makes sense. And it kind of goes back to the initial conversation we had about um, opportunity, equal opportunities, and traditional male-female roles in the workplace and how uh-huh. those were filled. And um, so as much as I have always since I became aware of inequality or injustice have been very vocal about it. Um, I, it's never like being able to be a single parent and working, having a good job and being a leader and all that stuff. It was never anything I wanted. What formed my picture of what I wanted in my life was like watching the Waltons on TV. You're probably way too young, but it's, you've seen it. So, you know, it's a giant family with, you know, it takes like during the depression era, uh, eight kids, that was my dream. So I never wanted a career. I never wanted anything. I wanted to be a stay at home mom with a lot of kids. Yeah. And so it, it, you can't really equate that gut instinct, right? Of this is the person that I think I want to be, but this is what my life is bringing me. And so I had to change course and drive that direction. Mm. Do I think, and going back to that question, are there, you know, considering what the data is showing in the studies they were doing uh, in Scandinavia, that are there traditional things that because of our gender we're drawn to and we're better suited for? It doesn't mean no. everything shouldn't be open. But um, but it's interesting to think about what that means for me as a, as a person in the world, but if for everybody that doesn't even have any thought about it. They're just right. taking that path. Right. I don't even know how I connected that to what you were just saying. Um, well, the the stereotypical roles of yes. a traditional conservative and how that religion, and your then you take system. programming of a of a bygone era oh that gives this picture to right. you, and you, you know you're obviously going to physically identify with you know the a strong female role in that story, yep. and you know maybe not obviously, but it's most likely that you would identify with the people that at the most shallow levels visually. Yep look like you and you're like oh that looks like fun the Mm. way they portray it i'd like to be that person and maybe there's you know truth because they're portraying it that way because it's a stereotype because it is true for a bell curve of the population and that's fine i i really don't want to get and i'm not saying i don't want to get there in this conversation what i'm saying is i don't want to get to a place in our society where we're trying to skew a natural bell curve right right now just because i'm naturally selfish doesn't mean i shouldn't try and change that though so there's all these things that kind of come into play that you know if if i i mean i would never be able to be successful and do a good job at being a teacher uh staying home with young children Uh, There's a lot of things that I wouldn't naturally succeed at, Um, but there's other things that I, you know, you know, I thrive at uh, that I'm drawn to and want to do. I mean, just I have a very weird old van, not old, well, kind of old van. Uh, Men are shown to be far, far more visual than women as as far as how they process and far more interested in mechanical things, mechanical, mechanical shapes and stuff. When I drive around in this van, yes. 99% of the time, men are like, you oh. know, dog and a dog whistle, yeah. right? And like... Interesting. 
1% of the time is a woman ever like, Hey, you know, and it's, uh, it's just, we're, we're in a bell curve of natural distribution, but that in no way means that we should enforce that right. because you're this, that, or the other, that you have to be in the meat of the bell curve. Right. There will be outliers. Right. Um, and that's completely fine. So that's where that equality of opportunity right. is so incredibly important. But to skew and manipulate the whole thing as an equality of outcome yeah. is inappropriate, I think. So I, I think I agree. I agree that it's inappropriate. I totally agree that there is a natural distribution. And what I really think the key is, is to try to let go of assumptions. Right. So that's hard, though, because you, you have to be critical and judgmental. On, on things, but that doesn't mean you have to be, you doesn't mean you have to do assumptions. So sorry to interrupt oh, it's you okay. there. I, assumptions I are a big pet peeve. Oh, it's good. I do too. But my um, assumptions are a big pet peeve of me, yeah. of mine for many reasons. Um, I think it goes back to justice. I think assuming people are a certain way, cultures are a cer behave a certain way, th I, any of them. I think it, holidays, I've, I'm sure I've messed with my family several times because let's not assume we're going to do Thanksgiving at your house on this right. day. Why don't we ask? And that's a lot more work. But um, And there are traditions that we stick to. But my kids, it drives them crazy because I'm like, let's not have tradition. Let's see what we want to do. Every year is a new year. And, right. um, <laughs> and so, so there's a part of me that wants to take the time because you know what? I'm a different person this year than I was last year. And you may be too. And I don't know what's going on in your head, but let's right. talk about this. Um, just a quick illustration that I, I actually thought I was really proud of. So here I was, neither of my ex-husbands really had an influence on my children's life. And I brought them up myself and I have a lot of sisters. And so my son was surrounded by women and me. Um, he still will tell me happy, um, he calls it Mother's Day for Father's Day. So like Mom. he took me to lunch because it's a father with an M. Yeah. Um, but when he was growing up, I would say to him as a child, as I started to even gay got on my mind and homosexuality and what does that mean and fairness and support. And so he'd be a little kid and I'd say, it's going to be so great when you bring home your husband or wife and we want to meet him. Or just think if someday if you choose, you want to be married and then if you want to have a boyfriend or girlfriend. So we did this till probably he was in seventh grade and he's fine. Like, mom. I am not gay. And I'm like, it's okay. I just wanted you to know if you can't, like it was, I was so clear on setting right, that expectation right. for him. Um, I know some people had a problem, maybe had a problem with that, that just thinking that you put it as a possibility. Right. But I really do think it's about really challenging assumptions every step of the way that you can. And I mean, our own that's assumptions. A, that's a huge, you know, issue in my head right now with my current situation that I, I watch my boys when they're around, you know, girls their age. And I, from, from the amount of attention and quietness that they get from when other girls are around, I, I'm pretty sure they're both straight. But were that not to be the case, yep. you know, how, how do I balance my side of the equation in that dynamic where my wife is still very religiously conservative? And I have to be extremely careful and respectful of the uh, situation and, and environment that we started our marriage in. Yep. Because I'm the one that's changing. You got it. Um, so that it's a really hard call on my part uh, to not speak up when I, to, and, and I usually do if, if I feel it's uh, valid but to 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 say all right my beliefs have changed i know we were 
you know, dated and married mm. and in this atmosphere of belief, you know, um, and now I'm the one changing it, it. I think it would be inappropriate for me to raise a stink and try and pull everyone out of that. And it's been very difficult not to have continual arguments or discussions even about that around the kids, because that's very difficult for kids to be around. Right. And we've we've tried to keep that out of, you know, their view as much as possible. But I still think it's good for kids to uh, be able to observe people have discussions about difficult things um, productively. Yes. Um, But at the same time, my children believe in God and to see their father not believe in it. I've seen it cause them stress and I know they worry about it. And they need consistency and they need simplicity of belief at this point in their life. Right. So that that's a really hard thing. I can't imagine that part. And, yeah. and a very uh, logistical question. Do you, does your family pray at dinner? Yeah, they always pray at dinner. And what do you do? Uh, I, I bow my head with them, but I don't pray anymore because I feel like I'm lying. Do they notice? Does everybody notice? Yeah, it's a very stereotypical thing, you know, to like ask the husband to pray for yes. the meal, you know, yes. but my, my wife's a very, you know, she she's such a great leader, but she won't really too far put herself in that role in spiritual situations or religious situations mm-hmm. because uh, the Adventist church doesn't, I don't think yet, ordain women mm-hmm. as as leaders in the church you know so it's it's a very fluid and odd dynamic that you know that my my older son will he's happy to pray for the meal and and get on with it you know and my younger son doesn't like to be put on the spot in front of people mm-hmm. um and usually my wife will defer would you like to pray that? no you go ahead and it's just a constant mm-hmm. no you go ahead and you know, I, I don't want to be disingenuous about it. And the few times that people other than my wife have asked me to pray, I'm fine to say what I know people want to hear. And so I do that. So it just is interesting because I was thinking about, as you just articulated, the, the challenge of the family and those stereotypical roles. And what does that mean? And what is your wife comfortable with that you're now saying, well, I'm not sure that, that I feel that I fit that role the same way I did. Now say that again. Uh, when you're saying that the challenges of having a family as you're challenging mm-hmm. your belief system and yep. wrapped up in that belief system is a belief and comfort with stereotypical roles. And, hmm. and you're saying maybe that's, that doesn't, now that I have a different belief or I'm finding a new belief or exploring that, that doesn't feel as clear that this is male, this is female. I want you to carry the mantle a little bit with her to say, you, you, you may have a desire that she says the prayer. Oh, she'll, she'll pick up anything and run with it. She, she is a force to be reckoned with, to be clear. But Um, she, but she wants, but it sounds like she would, she appreciates the traditional spiritual supported models of a traditional man, woman, family with kids. in, in, in an ideal setting. <laughs> so like when we were first married, yes. uh, you know, I was like, all right, I'm the spiritual leader of the home. Uh, let's come together and we'll have worship now at this hour. Yeah. And, you know, and she's like, I'm not doing that right now. I got other stuff to do and you're not going to control my time. You know? And so there was, the, there was this constant battle of within me, like, I got to set the spiritual tone here. I got to get people together. I got to do this. And then it was a constant, like, you're not going to control me. You're not going to control my time. So 
she definitely wanted a spiritual husband and a spiritual leader in the home, but there's also a strong, she's a very strong, very independent mm. person. Mm -hmm. um, so she, I believe that she has an ideal that she struggles with. Yeah. Okay. Now that's obviously me speaking for yeah. her and, you know, um, and I did a podcast with her that is on, uh, on the podcast that you can listen to. She's very intelligent, very articulate, well-spoken, uh, thoughtful person. Um, we just see things differently mm -hmm. and, and she can speak faster and more eloquently on most of it. Um, so there was that initial, uh, you know, time in our lives where I was trying that and, and I was getting nowhere. And I think a lot of it I've been told was that I was trying to control the situation too much. I don't honestly know that that's it. I still have some reservations about, um, you know, her just background and what she expected and what she, um, was going to refuse that anyone uh, be too much in control of her life. She's very independent and, and very capable of being independent. So um, there, there's a lot of just internal conflict there, mm -hmm. I think. Now, now that she is devoid of having a, um, you know, a spiritual male figure in the home, uh, she's filling the role very... Uh, courageously, vehemently, whatever. Uh, and I saw robustly. She very <laughs> robust. Yes, she's she's fulfilling that role on her own in a robust manner, and has become, in in my observation, far more, uh, far more religious, hmm. in a, as a reaction to my journey. I I think so. So, I just picked up on a couple things that I think that. Uh, I am feeling empathy because I, when you said, you know, I just, just, I'm picturing your family and that you started out and now all of a sudden one of these things is not like the other, mm. right? So there's a sense of, yes, you're changing and it's, and there you have a family of three other people that are still on the same viewpoint around that and yep. how that must feel. I don't know. I think I, if I were in your shoes, there would be a sense of guilt uh, yep. and a sense of loneliness, yep. but you're still staring into the fire. And so yep. that's what's commendable. Yeah, it's, it's very hard, especially when uh, her side of the family gets together. Her, her side of the family is just uh, generally far, far more conservative as personality types to a degree. Um, and she has twin brothers who are very very religious men mm -hmm. spiritual and religious men and they lead out and they have kids that they sit and they read with and and i'm around it and i observe it and there there's a lot of guilt associated with knowing that everyone that i'm close to that's you know mm -hmm. my immediate family uh still would love for me to be that person mm. Were I to do that, it would be extremely disingenuous at yep. this point, yep. you know, so that's That's really hard now to all of their credit. No one is um, Condemning or dismissive or uh, Trying to walk me out of communion with them. It's not an Amish shunning situation yeah, yeah. by any stretch um, 
they're all very respectful and I know they all do their best to love me. I don't, I don't know that genuinely everyone appreciates me, but, um, they're all very respectful and I, and I commend them for that. And while knowing that it's probably very difficult for them. It's, um, and, and I think about, again, I'm putting myself in your wife's shoes, which I can't do, but it's so, to me, speaks about the power of love because it is that you guys are... It's pragmatic, man. When you look at the situation, I mean, it's... It's not only that. It can't be just pragmatic. I mean, you know... That's the other thing that I've come to what? question lately. Like, what, you know, biblically, God is love, and, and that's the closest definition I can get to God at this point. Um, but what is love? It, to me, it still seems self-centered. Like, if it didn't feel good to express love... In every situation right. that I can think of expressing love, it will feel good to you. It feels good to me that I've made myself uncomfortable in the short term to have long-term deep mm -hmm. groundswell of peace, knowing that I've done the right thing and I've put my wife and my children on a, on a uh, more even keel mm -hmm. with a, a slightly more selfless uh, husband and father in their life, mm -hmm. right? Um, but that, that still feels good to it's me. It's what's in it for you. It's, it's still, it's right. So, so I still don't understand that. Well, you so know? that's still, that's, that's saying that the, the self-centeredness really is, is nature, right? So we are designed for self-preservation if you look at everything yep. that we do. And so you, if that was your true nature and you trans, you didn't have to preserve yourself in this lovely world we live in, you weren't fighting for your life, but you were, fi you were fighting for your being in a way that is your natural instinct to go back to maybe it is your natural instinct and everyone's natural instinct to be self-centered because if that's what drives us and it also serves us you could call it manipulation right so yeah. if you give something of yourself I think it's impossible not to feel something when you give something right if I if I came or yeah, yeah. right you there's there's benefit it's yeah. both people benefit from it see now that's where I get the um I don't get anything out of my self-centered yes. thought of I don't get anything out of going over to the you know soup kitchen yes. and helping those people. I I don't see how what I'm doing is going to help them. Like to me, anyone else could be there putting the cornflakes out and the coffee and and cleaning up, and the the same thing would be happening. In fact. I'm so bad at small talk and conversation in that kind of a situation. I'm, I'm just, there's like my father-in-law could go there and brighten every single person's mm. day there. He's incredible at that. Um, me, like you, you send me to the airport counter to yeah. see if I could get the upgraded seat and they will actively want to downgrade my seat. <laughs> You send my wife, yeah. they'll bump us to first class. And I've, yeah. I've witnessed this yeah. on the same person, yeah. even knowing that I'm involved after the fact. I was like, got back and I was like, all right, sweetie, you need to go talk to him. Hey. <laughs> yeah. So again, it's that I, I don't feel like I'm doing good there because is it because I'm not feeling um, that connection to you people? You haven't done it. You've I have. I, oh. I went probably two, two, three times. Didn't do anything for you. Didn't do it. And that's a very self-centered statement. I'm, I helped, but I certainly didn't get any feedback from it that was 
positive other than like Trent, you've you've done something that you didn't enjoy for the benefit of others. That's not that's not cutting it. So yeah, right. So when I was volunteering, right, if you just went from purely altruistic motives, I shouldn't have stopped any of my prior volunteering trials because it was serving someone else. So I believe I believe that what motivates me is serving and helping other people. Mm-hmm. That motivates me, so there's my win. So if I was completely altruistic and I didn't like doing the English as a second language tutor, I would have continued because I was serving someone else and I would have subjugated my own needs for the volunteer experience. Okay. Does that make sense? I think so. So I think I don't want to be a martyr. And I think that people, there are plenty of people in the world that give, 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 and they're not getting anything out of it. If Mm -hmm. you continue to do that work of volunteering and you weren't getting anything out of it, I don't know that it would be helpful to the, I don't know that it would be helpful. Right. And so there are people that that's a good fit for. It's just not my calling. It's not your thing. I mean, I don't enjoy it and I want to hear that it's not my calling. Well, it's not your right thing. There's lots of people that if you feel a need, that's the first question. Do you feel a need to give? Yes. Well, then you just need to find the right place. So when I went to the Center for Grieving Children, I was there for a year and I stopped. And for the first eight or nine months, I everybody would sit there and they would say how much, they, like they'd miss a week and they'd come back. I loved it so much. I love being here. I totally got into it because I am comfortable with death and thought I could help people. Mm-hmm. And I love children and I just wanted to be of service and, I felt, and I'm a good facilitator So I, in life. I've done a lot of facilitation, so I thought I could use that. I was like, and I finally got brave enough to say, I'm not feeling this. Like, you guys are loving this place and having all these feelings. I'm feeling obliged. And I come here, but I I have made that commitment. My parents go to this place, and I was using it as a substitute for church to make myself feel better about it, or at least knowing that I need a selfless practice of serving others that should be beneficial to me. But I I don't enjoy it, and I don't even get fulfillment from it you know, kind of like you don't enjoy a workout, but right. you, f- you feel that you improved things yeah. at the end of it. I, yeah. It didn't feel that either. I, I don't feel like I helped any. So really. I think you need to honor your feelings. So you're intellectualizing that you should be doing this and using this as a model. But what you're feeling is saying, that's not the right fit for me. Right. So for me, when I went there and I said, I'm, something's missing. I was a little jealous that everybody else was getting feelings from this. And I was like, this isn't happening for me. And something shifted, and I don't know if, and I know part of it was me, but something shifted, and I, and I had a moment, and I was like, oh, I get it now. And it took me eight months. And, and then I realized, okay, I'm enjoying it, but it, it is something that's a, long, a commitment every week. <coughs> Excuse me. So now I sub, which is bringing joy to me. So I can go there, and guess what? I got rid of my expectations, the obligation. Subbing is I can choose to or not. And yeah. for me, I go with an open, free heart that way. And mm. I don't feel like if I can't, if I can't go, I'm going to disappoint anyone. So you sub as a... <coughs> As, as a facilitator. ES, a facilitator. I'm a facilitator at the Center for Grieving Children. What oh, I was saying, okay. if I was, when I brought up the ESL because I realized it wasn't my, I didn't like it. I ESL. wasn't finding it rewarding. I didn't like it. It was, it was not what I wanted to do, what I thought, what I envisioned. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get any joy out of doing it. And I thought just volunteering was enough, but it wasn't. And so selfishly, I stopped. If I was purely altruistic, I would have continued whether I enjoyed it or not. Because you I, know that... I'm serving somebody. Me being there serving someone. But, but I, right. You, you looked at it as I need to be engaged yes. in this, not just a one-sided thing of helping these people, but 
it needs to be a symbiotic relationship to a degree where we're both benefiting out of because that's really where more joy is going to be communicated right. and empathy will flow more freely. Because it's not obligation, it's choice. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Hmm, interesting. Hmm. <laughs> well, um, I feel like I feel like that's that was like a sign. Our, our like <laughs> it was. We couldn't have made that happen. It was just gentle too, wasn't it? This has been a really interesting conversation and I am I'm am so glad that you uh that you decided to come down and talk. I think we should make this at least an annual event. Deal. <laughs> Deal. And uh are you from Maine originally? I'm from Portsmouth. I'm from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So you'll be in the area. I live in right up the street. I live All in right. Scarborough right now. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I noticed anything. Yep. So so maybe even more than that, maybe, maybe we need to figure out how to get you in like on a more like just to talk like even like about specific things, maybe we could have a topic, like do some more things like that you're actually interested in, because yeah. this seems like this was a, a self-help thing for me the whole well, time. No, that's what I'm no. saying. So here's what I was just going to say to you. You are in service of others of what you're doing now because you have given me gifts today to make me think differently. Well, that's good. And so it's selfish for you, it's your exploration, yeah. but it's a gift to the person that finds himself on the other end of this conversation. Well, that's so good. you can't come away with this without something to think about and something that you've given me. So thank you. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, definitely would love to do this again. Yeah. And even if we had like things that you specifically think are you know, deeper below the surface things that you'd like to discuss or even other people that, that you think would be good to talk mm. to and anything else mm -hmm. or, or you and someone else. We've done that where we've had three people on as well and kind of had like a somewhat round table cool. conversation. So it's been really fun. It's been I, great. I really appreciate it. So thank you so much, Victoria. Victoria. Oh, I've been called Jackson. that before. It's Valerie. Valerie. It's okay. <laughs> I've been called worse, but we, Victoria, I get a lot. We, we've yeah. been talking for what? Oh, Who it's knows, all right. almost three hours, and I'm calling you by your wrong That's name. That's all right. I'm so bad v. with names. It's okay. Miss V. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for coming down. Really appreciate it, and we're going to have to do this again. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you.